0: Originate, Innovate, Don't Deviate, Stories of Success.
1: Well, welcome to episode one of Originate, Innovate, Don't Deviate, uh, Stories of Success in brackets, if you can hear brackets, that's where they would be. Um, This is the very first uh, outing of my new idea, which is to uh, speak to people that I know, friends that I have, and uh, interesting people within the music and entertainment industry about stories of success. Uh, For many years I've made music my life, I've been a promoter, a songwriter, producer, touring musician and for the last four and a half years a a presenter on Soho Radio and most of my shows feature a lot of talking. So I thought why don't we just try something where we leave the music out and keep the talking in. Uh, And I'm really thrilled to say that my first guest for this series is Paul McDonald. So welcome to Originate, Innovate, Don't Deviate, Paul.
0: Thanks very much, and uh, yeah, sort of thrilled to be the first. I'm, I'm your guinea pig.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, <laughs> I, I wanted to do this with somebody that I kind of know so that I feel um, comfortable to get the format going. Yeah, if you um, mess it up, you can, <laughs> we can re-record me. it. <laughs> exactly, we can pretend it never happened. Yeah. Um, but uh, the truth is, when, when you arrived, I said, you know, we've known each other for many years. Um, many of your artists have played on stages that I put together at the they very have. beginning of their careers. Yes,
0: very grateful for that.
1: Um, but I, I don't really know much about you, and you, you know probably a little bit more about me, but I'm intrigued to know more of your journey in, this, in the industry. So uh, I, I'm going to ro- uh, rewind the McDonald life right back to uh, the beginning. Okay. Uh, and ask you, where were you originally from?
0: I'm from a, a, a real backwater called Cleethorpes, which is on the East Coast, I sort know. of northeast, halfway to Newcastle, you know, yes. from where we're sitting right now. So not a great musical, traditional, you know, wonderful place. I remember when I was a kid, you know, being desperate for, uh, to see gigs and we had, apparently, you know, I was a little bit young, but Queen played on their first album tour. Really? At, at, we had a Winter Gardens, right, Cleethorpes okay. Winter Gardens, and we had a pier. Uh, And it was an old sort of northern soul town, so there was a lot of history of that. Um, And then it had lots of sort of you know rock bands, like bands that people have never heard of, like the Pink Fairies would play there or whatever. There you go. Um, And yeah, then there'd be be the occasional sort of oh, you know, guys older than me at school would say, oh, we went to see Queen last night, and I was like, you know, who are Queen? You know, I was twelve or something, and and they played. Uh, And then of course. the winter that Winter Gardens was really famous in my mind because the Spots tour went there which was the Sex Pistols on tour, the one that got yeah. banned. Okay. And I was in the end of my fifth form upper sixth and a venue was the Cleethops Winter Gardens. It was a place that I would go and dance to Chic Records on <laughs> a Monday right. night in the sixth form disco. And I turned up one Monday and there was some some you know, something going on downstairs, I poked my head in, didn't make anything of it, went upstairs, carried on, you know, dancing to Chic and all that stuff, and then realized two weeks later that it was the Sex Pistols and the Clash had been right. there. And it was, you know, it was that era when literally within a week you'd turned and you you were into punk. You'd, you know, you'd stopped buying your Yellow right. record and you'd <laughs> bought your damned record and that was it, you were off.
1: W- was that the Christmas show?
0: Um, I don't, it might, it was certainly in the wintertime, I remember that, so it could have there, been. There's
1: a. Famous documentary, well, I don't know if it's famous, but there is a documentary about the Christmas show they did somewhere. And I remember, it was on television, I think it was on London Live, a couple of months ago, and I came in halfway through it, and it was just, it was such a nostalgic thing to see. You yeah, know, that, that yeah. kind of late 70s period, uh, Britain had such a look and such a feel.
0: Yeah, there's some great footage, actually, on, on YouTube, where I think they're interviewing the, the guy that was the, you know, the, the manager of the Winter Gardens, and he was absolutely fine with the whole thing. Right. No problems whatsoever, apart from... People climbing in through the bathroom window, you know, and so on. <laughs> but, yeah, it was great. So, so a musical backwater, yes, right. yes, without a doubt.
1: And, is that, am um, I right, I'm thinking that's kind of north of Blackpool?
0: Uh, it's on the other coast, so, oh, right, so it's okay. on the east coast, so it's Lincolnshire. Right, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, apart from that, were there other gigs? Were there, like Club no, pub gigs or? there were
0: none. There were none. As I say, it was it was your regular sort of growing up in the seventies disco, and you know the the hangover from the Northern Soul thing, which was quite cool actually, because it it sort of wanted to twin itself with you know the Twisted Wheel and and some of those famous Northern Soul venues. But it was sort of a slightly lower version of that. There was the odd there was the hangover from the sort of mods and rockers era of the sixties. So with it being a seaside town, right. so you'd get some of that fashion knocking around. Um, but beyond that, yeah, no, not, not very much happened there musically. Um, uh, apart from the fact that Rod Temperton came from there. Oh, Rod Temperton came from uh, about three right. miles outside and obviously went heat on wave, to Michael Jackson. Right. Yeah, Heat Wave first and then, yeah, wrote Thriller. Yes. Um, and um, amongst uh, others. <laughs> Never met him, unfortunately. Never met him, but there you go. Um,
1: was it a musical family?
0: It wasn't a musical family in as much as that my parents were... were um, they really felt like almost like grandparents in a way. They were that generation of being a lot older, right. and as a result, they listened to very very traditional music. My my mum was German actually and came to the UK after the war, and she had that sort of that that side of love of, of some opera and so on. And my dad listened to, was was from um, uh, 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 second generation Irish, you know. So it was, there was a lot of that very romantic balladeer stuff that was really ancient as far as I was concerned (laughs) but I grew up in a household and occasionally there would be I remember my mum loving Michelle by the Beatles Ah. and I think it's because it had some words in it that were not English literally that as as apart from it being a beautiful melody and everything else so there was the odd song that that really resonated with me but I was an only one and my musical education really came from taking myself off into our very cold unheated back room with a with a a mono record player and borrowing tons and tons and tons of music from mates at school because you know we didn't have the money to buy it and just losing myself in it absolutely losing myself in that world uh and you know the, the the people that really I gravitated to straight away were Bowie you know in a huge way he was my he was the only person that aged 13 14 I had an entire bedroom wall full of photographs of Bowie you know uh, and then and then I got into queen and then I was into Elton John in a big way and you know this was a period when when you know in cleethorpes nobody knew what gay was for a start right. you know yet you know flamboyance was not what that place was about <laughs> so maybe there was some escapism there really you know and all of that and then I I loved Stevie Wonder I was I was always into voices um and that whole that I was the right age I was just at sort of starting secondary school when the glam rock thing was happening right, you so know 71 70 72 yeah. around that time so yeah it was, it was great to be a part of and then lucky enough to be 15 or whatever when punk started
1: did you did you see the ziggy tour or any of the bowie no, sure. i
0: didn't see bowie until 84 and the serious right. moonlight tour no sadly not no i was no.
1: front row ziggy stardust no way Bristol colston hall really? 1973 i think it wow. Was. Wow, wow, wow because the tour had kind of grown from pubs in north london to Proper concert halls. Yeah. In the in the space of nine months. I remember a
0: reading about him playing at Aylesbury Friars. Yeah. Which is a small venue, you know, but they put everybody on, obviously, because it was well promoted. But from there to to Hammersmith to seeing that 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 movie footage of him retiring well, Ziggy at Hammersmith just mind blowing.
1: Great BBC documentary, isn't there? Where they, um, I don't know if you've seen it. Yes, but I have. They, the, in the space of eighteen months, he'd just finished Hunky Dory. He started Ziggy Stardust. Uh, they did two American tours. I mean, it, it's unbelievable yeah, the yeah, amount yeah, that they absolutely. did in that time.
0: Absolutely. Why do you think the output of, of people like that was so great? I mean, Beatles, two albums a yeah. year. Was it they weren't doing as much international promo as you'd expect these days from artists? I don't
1: think they were doing any promo. No. I think they were making records, going yeah. on tour. They'd have a, you know an interview every now and then with the Melody Maker or NME or um, Record Mirror or whatever. Yeah. But there was so little outlet for music and for people who love music. You, it's hard to find it. So, um, yeah.
0: But touring-wise, they were covering the world, weren't they? So they were certainly putting in the, the miles and the hours.
1: I think um, one of the things is that that there was... I mean, we, we get caught up with social media. We're, we're on the social media right now. This podcast is... Somewhere in the world is, is being socially media But that takes up some time. And I, and I know it's kind of, well, we're artists, it's the future, this is what we have to do, but... Um, I find myself, like many people, a little bit lost if I haven't got my mobile phone and I'm not doing things and checking things. And that never happened when I was growing up. No. Right? It no, was, no, no. There was more time for many other things.
0: Yeah, except it was really simple. I remember I remember it was music, sport, and three channels of TV that finished at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Life was pretty simple then, yes. you know? That's so, why music was so central for so many people, whereas it isn't yes, now. and you... No, they're it, all looking in different directions.
1: It was also because it was so rare, right? If 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 the tour came to town and you didn't see it, you wouldn't see it on you. There was no YouTube to see it on. There was no DVD to get. There was no VHS. Top of the
0: pops. Why did it get that viewership? Because exactly. it was the only thing, really. I mean, Whistle Test obviously was on at, at certain times, but Top of the Pops. My goodness, yeah. I mean, seeing I, I saw that performance of Bowie doing Starman on yes. Top of the Pops and it was as my... And it lives with you. Thought. Yeah, but so was seeing Sparks doing this talent big, big enough ed- for the yes. both of us. you know, that was such a good Just song. incredible. And and also hearing Brian Ferry's voice and not having heard Dylan. Right. And thinking, what's, you know, him doing Hard Rain's Gonna Fall and I was like, what's that about? And <laughs> Roxy Music and all of that. Amazing. amazing, amazing, amazing.
1: Was there a point where you thought you wanted to make music or did you always just have a passion to enjoy music as as, as as part of the process of being a listener
0: yeah I, I absolutely wanted to make music I mean I picked up an acoustic guitar a second acoustic guitar when I was 13 and a half 14 and I peaked about three weeks later <laughs> you know I didn't really ever get any better than that on it but I still I mean uh, uh, when I went to university I was I was playing in bands I really really wanted to be part of it and it was that it was that growing, Need as much as a desire to be part of the industry in some way. I didn't even know what the industry was. I didn't know how the various bits of it fitted together at that point. Um, so yeah, without a doubt, I I was in a band. You know, with a couple of mates of mine, and we all went off to different colleges and used to meet at home. And you know, so you one, formed
1: the band in Cleethorpes.
0: Yeah, one one of them had a Tascam four-track. Oh yeah, and uh, we all used to make demo. You know, we used to on make demos reel to in reels. the bedroom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. On a cassette. Oh yeah, yeah cassette, a four-track okay. on a cassette. Oh, one okay, of the yeah, first yeah. ones. With a drum machine, you know, a Doctor Rhythm or something, yeah, whatever, yeah. just to get the thing down, and uh, it was absolutely terrible. You know, <laughs> I couldn't really sing a note, and thought I was the singer, and uh, but it was it was a great process to go through, and you know what? It sort of taught me that I wanted to be on the other side of the fence. It really said to me, "You're actually not a performer," and it. But what it did, I think, without realizing it at the time, is it made me respect performers and respect the people that could get up and do it. I am still in awe of someone that can put together a guitar solo like James Bacon or right, whatever, yeah, because yeah. I just look at that and go, I'm st- I still fiddle around on guitar and I haven't got any better than I was since I was 14, 15, <laughs> but I still love it, Yeah. but I just didn't have that aptitude. But I was always fascinated in the way that songs went together, the way they were arranged, and you know, maybe I thought production at some point, even though I didn't know what a record producer did, would be something, but I didn't go down that road because of the
1: but Where did you go to university?
0: I went to Essex University in Colchester, and uh read uh, European literature and uh, it was it was amazing one of the reasons i chose it was because it had fantastic bands there <laughs> in the freshers week <laughs> Uh, and, and so they have had, a good had a history of it you know pretenders and echoing the bunny mm-hmm. man and specials and all sorts of people have played there
1: see i like that you know a good choice of university based on the the, the music booking policy absolutely
0: nothing to do with the course whatsoever <laughs> and also the good thing was it was getting away from home in the north and but i didn't want to be in london i knew i wanted to gravitate towards london eventually but it wasn't that big step as to coming to london but it was within striking distance so i used to come up to see gigs you know Saw, saw gigs, you know, a place like Hammersmith Palais where it's right. still on and so on, which was an easy train ride up. So that was good.
1: What was the, f- the first proper gig you went to then?
0: First proper gig I ever saw was the Clash at Sheffield top rank on the start of their second album, the, the Give Them Enough Rope to wow. Blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind at 16, 17, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they just became my favourite band, you know. Uh, yeah, that was pretty amazing that was pretty amazing
1: they they managed to straddle that um th- that kind of punk lo-fi but amazing energy sound songs it's yeah. whether they did a cover or whether it was an original song it sounded like the clash and and it stands the test of time i remember Uh, which Bond movie did I see it was quite a while ago but there's a Bond movie where he's in the new MI5 HQ and it's some maybe it was the last Pierce Brosnan one and he's in his like his jet ski boat thing and it flies out and at the moment it does that London Calling comes on oh great right and it just sounds so good yeah you know
0: they were mythical as well you know everything was romantic about them the imagery I mean from the first album which was obviously the the three chord clash to to the way it, it, it moved through to through the second album where they embraced a bit more of that sort of American side of it to, to London calling the album which is still a massive favourite of mine and where they embraced so many different styles from rockabilly to reggae you know it's just a fantastic fantastic band really that that was sort of as musical as they needed to had the musical ambition with Mick Jones and, and, and yeah. so on you know leading that side of it um, to get away from what became sort of punk landfill. Let's call it that. Let's invent a <laughs> let's invent a phrase like for all those for all those third division bands that came along in their in their wake, yeah. you know, as always happens in any scene. But yeah, just truly visceral and really thrilling. Really thrilling.
1: And so this is kind of about 77 78 now.
0: Yeah, 78, yeah. Yeah. Um, so taking 79.
1: So, uh, so from Colchester, you've formed the band, but now you've gone to university, and yeah, everyone's absolutely. kind of gone their separate ways a little bit. Yep. Where's it, the next step?
0: It was then all about coming to London. I just had to be in London. It just seemed to be reaching out and have everything that I wanted, and and that was absolutely driven by music and fashion. You know, it was it was everything that was exciting to me was here. Obviously, um, you know, I I used to do sort of. Day trips. I remember bunking off from the school politics trip. We were supposed to go to the House of Commons, so got the coach up with the rest of the school. Then I bunked off to go to uh, the Virgin Mega Store and to go to the Kings Road and buy clothes oh. and all of that. Did you go to Johnsons? Yes, I just loved Johnsons. Now, uh, Johnsons too. was in its height when I sort of arrived in London. I bought, you know. I've Still got my rock and roll jacket from yeah, Johnson. My they, leather jacket, they which were the was,
1: best leather jacket. Nobody jackets. knows what we're
0: talking about, but no. you know, they, they, can you describe I, them.
1: I can. Well, those in my attic, they, my they were you know, me. they're like motorbike jackets, yeah. right, but then on steroids. So, I had one that was um had an animal print on it with long tassels, but there was something about the buckles, so they had like buckles um that you could use to tighten the sides of the jackets and pull them in a bit, but most of the time you didn't do that. And, and they would make a noise as you were walking on. I used to call it the Johnson's jingle, right? Great. You kind of, you knew that was a Johnson's <laughs> jacket, but they were all kind of one-off designs. And, yeah. And they, were, they weren't they were cheap. No. You know. No, it was saved for a long time. They were yeah. like a couple of hundred pounds yeah. in the 70s. Yeah, Great. Sho- I used to get my shoes there. Yeah. I used to get my shoe tips, right? You could get those little metal pointy tips that you could put on pointy boots and kind of screw Fantastic. them in place, and, and the shirt uh, um, cuff uh, collars. Well, um, mine had
0: rock and roll written in studs on the back, the words rock and roll, yeah. and a whole load of other studs. And then it had painted in blue and silver um, the the seven inch sort of paper sleeve of an Eddie Cochran record. Oh. And it just was, it wasn't so much that I was an Eddie Cochran aficionado, it no, was but. just so cool, you know. So, and then of course it was Zoot Suits and all of that later on, you yeah. know. So yeah, I just followed all those fashions. But I mean, I think one of the things that brought me to London is at that time, I thought I wanted to get into music journalism. Uh, the Enemy had been my Bible. When, yeah. you know, let's take ourselves back, The Enemy was selling 100,000 copies a week, as was Sounds, as was Melody Maker. Yeah. Unbelievable if you think well, about it now. Come and uh, give it away at Tube Station. I you know, know, but you know,
1: it, it's because it was kind of the internet of its time. Yeah. It, it both gave you information, news, gossip. You could buy gear, sell gear, join a band, find a girlfriend, uh, find somewhere to live. It was all in the, the between those magazines, it had everything, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right, yeah, and really tribal as well, you know, they were quite delineated in yes, terms of who I, and what they were. I, I wrote was about. a melody maker I myself. I thought you might have been, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, my hero, Paul Morley, yeah. fr- from that era, was, was obviously, had come through and I'd followed his work through um the enemy and through the punk days and then people like ian penman who are great writers yeah. uh all sorts of people and there's then a link to how i sort of got going from that really but uh, but yeah I, I i came here thinking i wanted to get into journalism but i'm sort of glad i didn't i don't think i would have been that great at it maybe
1: well you you've carved it's out tough
0: life as well i think yeah and, a journalist. and
1: you've also carved out um quite an influential career being able to help a lot more people by doing what you do than actually writing about what people do um not to denigrate journalism but you know there's a there's a a role that everyone has to play in this industry and you've um you've you know you represent some of the the most original voices and some of the biggest artists in the world um well, I don't want to get there too soon. No, no, let's because not I'm enjoying do that. the journey. No. Was yeah, exactly. we've just come out of Johnson's. We're still on the King's yes, Road. we are loving
0: the King's Road. We're bunking off from did, school to go to to did, go and buy. Did you go to Kensington, shoes, Market? Shoes. Kensington Market? Kensington Market. <laughs> all of that to me, it was just a dream. Wasn't you know? it? <laughs> it was an absolute dream because it was everything I couldn't get back home yeah. in Grimsby and Cleethorpes, which was my little backwater. Safe, great to grow up there, but oh, I was just bursting to get out. I, in
1: its own way, kind of, uh, McLaren led to some degree but there was a zeitgeist moment waiting to happen that was just like the beginning of the 60s where there was a a, you know there's a generation of people that didn't live in the big cities like you um, and me because I came well I came from Bristol it was a little bit more cosmopolitan but still it was a lot of pub rock it wasn't it wasn't the cool city it is now Um, and uh, I think there was a sense that London kind of ignited this this new excitement about being able to be able to do something and be part of something that didn't belong to anybody else. Well, I mean, the
0: I don't want to keep going on about it, but I mean, the punk thing really was an absolute bomb in terms of what it did. You know, it, it dropped a bomb on the country for, for from, you know, making people not wear flares and not have long hair anymore to, to the music that, that changed, you know. So so all the prog rockers sort of got, got washed away overnight and something way more political and way more... Um, Seemingly important came along for if you were a certain age, and to this day, you know anyone that walks down the road with a spiky haircut, there you go, that's where it came from. Absolutely, you know, so it still pervades. And it was, it was, it was an explosive time. I think it was amazing, partly because I was the right age for it, and I, I just totally breathed it, you know. But yeah, places like the, the, the fashion that went with it, and the the stuff that subsequently came, and the enemy, and the Face magazine, and ID magazine, and all of that stuff, you know, all of that stuff all, all sort of glued together brilliantly.
1: When, when I was, uh, <clears throat> as some people know, I was for a short while in Iron Maiden. I didn't know that. Oh, didn't you know that? No, I oh. honestly didn't know that. In 1977, I was right. in Iron Maiden. Okay. I moved from Bristol to London to join right. Iron Maiden as a keyboard player. Amazing. And we, we, I stayed, I don't know, maybe six months or so in the band, writing, and, and we had all of the first album. And we did a particu- well. We did a gig at the, the Bridge House in Canning Town that w- wasn't a great gig, I don't think. But for me, it was pretty obvious that as a keyboard player, this was not probably the, the right band to be in. So I un- answered... Musical direction, Yeah, well, Yeah, it just didn't feel mm. right. It, didn't kind of, it wasn't gelling. And I thought yeah. after the gig, instead of feeling elated, I went, oh, this just didn't feel right. And I think they must have felt the same as well because they went through a few changes. So they got the right formula, which was twin guitar. I'd answer this advert that said, uh, it was in the Melody Maker in 77, and it said, actually said, Iron Maiden, big box advert, right? Iron Maiden wants, uh, Iron Maiden seeks drummer, keyboard synth player, no idiots, right? And <laughs> it was just so, it was so, as I, a, a London term I got to understand and know and use a lot when I moved to London. It was so leery. Yes. You know? Yes, and um, I thought, I've got a keyboard and a synth, and so I came up and I auditioned and I got the job. I moved to London got a job at Debenham's in Oxford Street and and I thought this is it, right? You know, I'm 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 here. I'm in London. I know I know the feeling you've got, right? Cuz it's like yeah. th- it's all you're happening on the inside, right? rather yes. than the
0: Outside. Yeah, was that your first attempt? Was
1: that Yes. Right, okay. So um you're one for one. So I went just straight in. <laughs> yeah. But after the gig I thought mm. so I looked at the Melody Maker and found another ad and I joined a band and it was with Brian James from the Damned. Okay. And it was a band called Tanz to Youth and we were managed by Alan Edwards. And Ian Grant, uh, when nobody knew who they were, and Alan was just building his PR company, doing punk and new wave, and basically paying for his office rent with more or less with uh, a retainer from Blondie, as I remember it, they just paid him weekly just to keep them in the press a bit, you know.
0: He did a great job. But well,
1: they was such exciting times. Yeah, they were. Yeah, the know? music was
0: fantastic. Yeah.
1: So, so you're in London now. Um, what? Do you, how? Why? How are you living? What are you doing?
0: I am. Um desperate to be in the music industry I've, I'm working behind the bar of a restaurant called Julie's in Holland Park
1: oh was well, very well known
0: yeah and of course it was known as a music industry home because it was round yeah. the corner from from uh, Labra Grove and mm. and all the Virgin, Virgin was lot there, yeah. used to come in there and of course Virgin then was you know something very different to now but it's amazing now but but then obviously it was it was much closer to the spirit of Branson and obviously they'd signed the pistols and done all of that they were they were they were amazing and i used to hear these people having lunch and talking about bands and so on and i was sort of you know taking their orders and had my cassette in my pocket <laughs> that i was just not brave enough to give to them you know my demos right um in fact i remember to this day i mean just just how wrong can you get it and how would i just chastise anybody that i work with now i do remember with my mates sending off demo tapes to rough trade <laughs> not addressed to any individual, just right. the A&R department of Rough Trade. We, we bought the, the, the cheapest cassettes we could in bulk. Mm-hmm. I think we must have put nine songs on each one and probably put the best song fifth or sixth <laughs> because quote unquote, yes. they'd be into it by yeah, then. Yes,
1: of course. <laughs> All the things you should never yeah, do. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Everything we did wrong. So there you go, that was my pathetic attempt. <laughs> when bands now are so sophisticated or when artists are so sophisticated, they gave themselves a lawyer, you know, and so on. And that was, I just didn't even know about that stuff then. So anyway, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing that and I'm still sort of, it's the tail end of me thinking this band is going to go nowhere. We didn't even play a gig. We were we, we managed to get into a rehearsal room, that's right. about it. So that was going nowhere. And um, I was really interested in everything that was happening musically. And referring back to Paul Morley, who was sort of my, you know, my, my writer, my journalistic hero, I'd sort of read everything he'd, he'd ever written. One evening into Julie's comes Paul Morley with... Anton Corbin, the photographer, and David Sylvian from Japan, and David Sylvian's Japanese girlfriend, and it's just I am just jaw hits the floor, (laughs) you know. And what what I did know that had happened was that Paul Morley had just started a record label called ZTT with the amazing producer Trevor Horn, and I loved all of his work as well, from Dollar to whoever, you know, Um, and. I just thought, something, something went off in my head and I thought, this is it, I, I need to do something here. So as they were leaving, I walked up to Paul and literally sort of blurted out whatever I said along the lines of, I think I even quoted some stuff that he'd written about a Spear of Destiny <laughs> review once, because I could literally almost remember it verbatim. And I said, I know you started this label, I'll come and post the letters for you. I'll, I'll take any start you can give me. And I think he was quite taken aback that i gravitate towards him rather than Anton Corbyn, right. famous photographer and yeah. filmmaker, and David Silvian, yes. famous artist. And he was great. And he said, come and see me. Office is in Ladbroke Grove in Psalm Studios. Wow. Give me a call and, and come round. And that was in the sort of early June of 1984. And uh, ZTT had just put out um, an Art of Noise record and a propaganda record. They were the two bands. And they just were just releasing... A song called "Relax" by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Oh, wow. What timing! Yeah, so so that was how I got my start.
1: That's amazing. Now that's uh, kind of in Yiddish, that would be chutzpah
0: It really would be, yeah.
1: Um, or just in um, uh, in English, it would be damn right brazen balls.
0: <laughs> I think you know sometimes if there's an opportunity there and the ball's on the penalty spot and the and the goalkeeper's gone for a cup of tea, you've yes, got to put it in the absolutely. back of the net. You know, you've got to help yourself. Um, and I'm always saying that to people that say oh you know how do I get started now but you've got to know your stuff yeah you know I knew my stuff about him about what he was doing with his label I was just immersed in music it was beyond
1: oh, a quite, I, I like this it's it just lost life. in music sorry is it chic lost in it music was indeed, yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
1: so what was your first job then
0: well I was sort of his gopher dog's body there were four people in the office uh, and what was amazing about it was that it was it was a tiny office. They had um, what was called a P and D deal, and I didn't know what that was. It was press and distribution, distribution yes. with Island Records. So Island Records did all the sort of back end heavy lifting, and literally Paul Morley sat there being Frankie says and and all of that. But also, in the, literally in the room next door, Trevor Horn and Steve Lipson were making these records, and for me, that was absolutely phenomenal, because I was around the musicians, and the bands would be in and out, and mm-hmm. there only two or three, three artists, you know. The musicians that played on all those records became the act known as the Art of Noise, right, so yeah. it was all wonderfully incestuous. So
1: Gary Langan was there. Gary
0: Langan, Ann Dudley, yeah. JJ Jeslik, yeah, I mean, I mean, just amazing people that have gone on to do great things as well, and, and the music they were making, and the arrival of the first Fairlight, I remember it sitting oh, yes. in the corridor. You know, yes. while, the, while the propaganda album for, was being. For those made. those
1: people don't understand what a Fairlight is. It, <laughs> it was an Australian uh, device with a keyboard and a computer, and it was ostensibly the first sampler. You could take any sound that a microphone could record, and you could put it into the computer, and you could play it back with a keyboard, right? Which now you can do on your iPhone, right? You can. It's, it's people don't even think of it, but then that was revolutionary, wasn't it?
0: It really was, yeah. I mean, it was a cumbersome piece of kit compared to everything that's being used now, you know, I mean, in the early days of computing and studios. But yeah, it was amazing because you got all those fantastic sounds. And of course, if you think about it, the 80s was all about technology and sound. So that's why yeah, all yeah. those records sounded like they did. Some of them don't stand the test of time. Time now, I don't mean Trevor Horn's records, but Not. just generally records from the 80s you had a thing called a DX7, which was a keyboard player, a uh, keyboard which was all about bright, shiny yes. sounds, right? You must have had one.
1: Yeah, quite thin. Sp- Do you know what? I didn't, because I didn't like the sound even okay. then. Even yeah. though it was amazing technology, yeah. I always thought, it sounds a bit cold and a bit and near. And if you if
0: you ever listen to a Go West record, yes. that's the sound of a but DX7. There's also,
1: and there's a lot of PPG going on in there, Wave PPG, which right. was, uh, was a great keyboard. I mean, the thing about Trevor's productions, um, they are faultless I mean I know unbelievable have, I, I know Gary really well he's done my radio show we talked a little bit about the stuff that he's worked on and I know a lot of time went into making those records but maybe that's a metaphor for life as well you know if you want something to be really special and really good it takes time it yeah takes... I mean
0: I mean, the, the, the apocryphal stories of him taking six weeks to decide on a drum sound they're probably a slightly exaggerated but not too oh, much. much not too much but then go back to before his label you know he'd made the debut Album by ABC. Yes, that is an amazing of love, piece unbelie- of yes. arrangement. I
1: was about to mention that because yeah, it's
0: that was an all-time And that Anne know? Dudley doing yeah. the strings on it? It's, yeah.
1: It didn't sound like anything else I'd ever heard in my life before. No, Moon, amazing songs, of. but it was both clean and full at the same time. It was yeah. both, I don't know, amazing. Record. But the
0: other great thing about the environment of where that office was and the fact that Trevor was in there—it was a place called Psalm West. It was just off Ladbrook Grove, which was cool as fuck in those days uh, and there were three other studios in there so daily there were people walking through the door and you were going oh okay so Brian Ferry's making Slave to Love in that room <laughs> oh, and Gary's working on uh, the Hounds of Love in there mixing right. and of course it's where Band-Aid was recorded Yes, and Frankie weren't involved with Band-Aid so that was a weird thing mm. um, with, with but, I, but I tell you what I, I remember vividly there used to be, there used to be a canteen there where we all went and had a sandwich and of course you know you'd be rubbing shoulders with all sorts of people and I can't remember if her name was Lorraine or Elaine but anyway she was the lovely lady that made the sandwiches so I'm standing there one day having a having a sarnie and George Michael stands there you know next to me ordering his sandwich and he says Elaine I'm just in the studio down there making a song can I just tell me what you think of these lyrics and he went last Christmas I gave you my heart and the very next day you gave it away. What do you think of that? And she went, oh, it's great, George. Run with it. Oh. Off he went.
1: I love it. Thank you, Elaine.
0: <laughs> yeah, there were lots of magical moments like that. I remember walking one morning and Stevie Wonder was sitting in reception. <laughs> and I nearly fell over, obviously. <laughs> uh, all-time hero. Uh, but he'd been on an all-night session. Because that's what Stevie Wonder does. Right. You know, because night and day to him are, you know, not yeah. a thing. And he w- he'd been in there, and he was actually leaving in the morning as we were all arriving to work. But yeah, so some fantastic fantastic memories of that time, and it was an incredibly creative. I mean, you must you know if you were making records then, that technology was sort of must have been an, uh, explosive in terms of the creativity that it brought out in the uh, songwriting absolutely. The song because it was about sonics, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: I, I often think <clears throat> uh, there's a lot of records that wouldn't have had success without that technology. Because the technology, both in in maybe inspired the making of the record, but definitely in created a sound for it. For instance, "Tainted Love." Yeah. Uh, you're a Northern Soul fan, so you know that "Tainted Love" came out, I think, originally in '64, um, something like that. And it was uh, it was Sonia, not Sonia Jones. Um, anyway, with Gloria Jones. Gloria Jones, yeah, yes. Possibly, yeah. Um, and uh, wasn't a hit. Right. And she re-released it again in the late '70s. Still wasn't a hit. It was. It's a great song, but it didn't have what it takes in the whatever and then tainted love by soft cell comes out with this unbelievable stripped down metronomic synthetic production that you could never have done at any other time and it's and it's now a classic it's like everyone thinks they wrote it and i think there's something about that 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 period of technology that was just so exciting you yeah
0: know? yeah i mean i mean human league records and yeah you know all that whole side of life all of that you know, post-craft work stuff that came along and then people were able to take it on, groups like Yellow and so on, making incredibly interesting records, as well as just amazing pop, pure pop creativity, you know. so, uh, so how long And you... you had Duran and you oh, had, yeah. you know, Spandau and you had all that stuff. So, so coming out of the sort of slightly doom and gloom back end of punk, you had this explosion of colour literally in the way that the bands looked and then also in the way that the music sounded. And I think that was that, was that excess of the 80s starting and it's starting around 82 83 and just went on for the whole so so how
1: long was your journey there in ztt
0: well bizarrely it feels like forever and it lasted 18 months really yeah because um i got poached to go and work somewhere else and it was sort of slightly falling apart there was a there was a whole issue with frankie goes to hollywood not wanting to you know wanting to redo their deal and this that and the other and a bit of business got in the way and the place was sort of It had an absolutely golden period and it just felt like it was being a bit creaky and it was just a bit difficult it's hard to explain Uh,
1: uh, what what was your role by the time you left well I was still
0: I was really still only an assistant no more than that I I literally was sort of day-to-day assistant uh, around the office and you know fielding calls for for Paul really you know because he was still a journalist um, but but was very much the head Trevor was making the records his wonderful wife sadly no yeah, longer with Jill. us Jill Sinclair was running the operation she was the business brain and Paul was Mr. Creative and I was just in awe of these people in on all sorts of levels so yeah I was just soaking it up it was my first I was so green honestly <laughs> I knew absolutely nothing except I was into but, it but
1: you, you I mean you started at the top well Literally. It,
0: was a, it was a fantastic place to be it was a fantastic you know because
1: everything make. that was coming out of that studio was a hit record
0: yeah it was yeah it was, it right? was it, I was spoilt yeah in that sense uh, and, 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 and it made it seem easy when yes. really it really wasn't <laughs> you know it, yeah it, it, it was it, it, they were quite dominant and and there were lots of lots of sort of plaudits and accolades that went with it uh, and each one of those three people were, were amazing at what they did yeah But anyway, the time came to sort of, you know, you get your head turned. And and so I I got... um,
1: How how do you? I mean, you're just an assistant. You were a barman at Julie's. Yeah, I know. And you got poached. Well, well, I was
0: lucky. I've got a very good friend called Nick Angel who actually lifted up the curtain for a few people because we were all at uni together. So there were three or four of us that all ended up in the music industry. And Nick started it because he became an A&R scout at Phonogram Records, part of Polygram. and, And his first big signing was a group called Swing Out Sister. And he introduced me to Gary Crowley and all these sort of people that were knocking around at the Wag Club on the scene. Wag Club yeah, yeah. no longer there. Used to be on Water Street. And um, he heard of a of a of a job going at London Records. I didn't even know. I knew the records, but I didn't really know anything about them. London Records had uh, Bronski Beat. Uh, Bananarama was their biggest act The Fine Young Cannibals They were a major right. What be, They became a major, major pop force At that time It was just hit after It was a hit machine um, Run by a guy called Roger Ames So um, I went over there And I was I was sort of poached to go and work in the marketing department because they'd looked at ZTT's marketing which was all Paul Morley not mm. me. <laughs> um and gone this is really original right. you know the whole Frankie campaign yeah. and everything that went round it it was all Paul and 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 I have to say that you know I was I was just sort of on his coattails but luckily I, I you know I, I managed to go into the marketing department there and work with them under a guy called Colin Bell. Um so Three, again three huge individuals Roger Ames who ran it and owned it a guy called Tracy Bennett who was the head of A&R and Colin mm-hmm. Bell who was the head of marketing and it was, it was a bit of a boys club I mean you had to sort of sink or swim there and you, you, know, you, had, to, you had to sort of st- st- keep your head above water but it was again very very exciting and with some really interesting people to learn from and, it, and they were just delivering hit after hit after hit and then a young chap called Pete Tong joined hmm. and started a dance label there right. you know, later on in the 80s So, 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 so what were we so looking at, 88 now,
1: 87? Uh,
0: that would have been 86 How Yeah, 86 I, yeah, yeah. so it started there in 86 Yeah, and I stayed there for um, ooh, 12, 13 years actually Really? Yeah that So was I started in marketing and worked on a lot of the big acts there um as i say you know the finding cannibals and then what became the communards what what was
1: a what was a marketing campaign in those days
0: well i mean obviously video was a was a massive part of it because video was exploding with the technology as well you know you 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 had all sorts of new video directors and so on so so the visual side that matched the 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 musical color let's call it was was huge we were still in the world of incredible sleeve designs we were still in the world of slogans we were still in the world of putting up posters on the street you know fly posters and everything else which we still Um, are now but 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 not quite so much nobody spends their money there now they spend their money advertising online because you know you put a poster on the street it's a bit like putting your finger in the air you just hope somebody walks by it that might recognise it or that isn't already looking at at their phone yeah I mean and and interestingly you know there was no drilling down really other than sort of going to a gig and looking around and going who's who's coming to this who are we marketing this to you know it, it, it wasn't tightly targeted in right. the way that it is now, and is way more sophisticated now, of course. But all of that was interesting, um, and it was there was lots of ads to be taken out in the music magazines that were still going that you mentioned earlier yeah. on. You know, so you take full page ads and things, and 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 I was I was sort of interested in all that design aspect. I, I really loved that. Right. I really loved all the creative side. I wasn't very good at the pressing up, at, at the keeping eye on how many records are being pressed in the factory, and the sales side and the dealing with the reps on the road and all of that. It was just, you know, those were not my strengths. So I, I wasn't interested that in that. But that wasn't your role. No, I just wasn't interested yeah. in that. In the slice. it was part. It was part of the job, right, oh, but it okay. was the part that didn't do very well. <laughs> no, I was. I was m- way more interested in looking at photographers and talking to the artists and putting the artists together with designers and making great sleeves and all of that stuff yeah
1: do you know mike pryor photographer uh
0: i do know the name and yes he, he did a yes. lot
1: he, he was a, did a lot in the 80s did, um and you might have come across him but uh, yeah uh so t- so a big years? pop factory yeah a yeah. big pop
0: factory that was fantastic and grew and uh, and, yeah. and this
1: and this was like mm-hmm. the um <laughs> the golden period of record companies making money.
0: It was indeed. Right? The, the CD was. had arrived
1: and finally been accepted as a format and now was being sold at a premium level uh, to people who already had the music on vinyl but wanted to be cool and and for the people that couldn't get it anywhere else needed to buy it on CD. And there must have been a sense that um, The Good Times were never going to finish. Yeah, without,
0: without a doubt. I mean, I remember being one of those people. I remember, I remember, I, I remember we, we made a Frankie Ghost Hollywood CD of their first album, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, and um, it was quite an incredible thing. Sonically, it was amazing. It did sound different, obviously. You know, the whole technology uh, was was great that went with it, and yeah, it led into the. 80- I remember people saying to me, "Oh, c- CD singles, you should buy a load of those because they're going to they're, they're going to be collectors' items in a while." You know, <laughs> thought they were only ever going to be ten. You know, I've got a loft full of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was hugely exciting and really. In parallel to, to everything, to to you know, the width of people's lapels and shoulders in fashion, right? To the, to the, the the this music that was being made went the spend went everything with it, and you know, typified by by Harry Enfield's character, loads of yes, money yeah. and all of that stuff that was also going on. Can we
1: ju- let's just jump back to um, Frankie goes to Hollywood a second. Relax, I remember seeing them on uh, the tube doing a very rough version of Relax where actually there was no song at all, apart from that little bit of chorus. And did Trevor see them on the telly?
0: Yeah, he did. Uh, uh, it, was, it, be, it was actually before my time, so I only know the story, because I actually saw that that, that, ish, that, yeah. that um, tube as well that you did, and, and probably didn't make too much of it at no. the time. Apart from, I think, Holly and Paul were dressed in s and Yes, it was, so it, it was a that bit... that probably stood out. Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. And, and they were in the For Hacienda, a regular band. weren't they? Yeah. And um, doing kind of playing it live, and it did sound... A bit shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it looked quite weird and quite almost well, a little bit dangerous. It was
0: definitely dangerous. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they were they were dangerous for pop music. Yeah. And, and Paul pushed that side of it, and that's what made it incredibly exciting because that's only good if the music that you put with it is incredible. Because right. if it isn't, you fall down at the first but, hurdle. But
1: somebody, presumably Trevor, had to see the potential in that.
0: Yeah, I think he did. I think I think. um you know his ability to take that bass line and turn it into the the, the backbone of a song, right. and then to take Holly's somewhat obscure lyrics um, and, and make them, you know, seeming to ha- sensical. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, like, like like all great moments in pop, something happened. The record got banned by Mike Reed on the radio, and then right. everybody wanted it. And they were what, off. Was that, the, was that the real reason? I mean... Yeah, it was. It was. was. He said, I'm not playing this filth on, on the radio, or whatever he said, <laughs> and, and sort of issued his own personal ban, and then, of course, everyone was interested right. in it. Yeah, because it was it was languishing in the chart at that point. Really? But I think almost more exciting was what came next, which was the record called Two Tribes. Yes. Because what Two Tribes seemed to do is it's, it, it really um, took that whole concept of club remixes and ran down the road with it, you know... Um, soul records or, or dance records or disco records at the time obviously had a 12 inch version on vinyl and generally had one or two mixes with it well Trevor was putting out a mix every week right. on two tribes to keep it when it went to number one it just kept it going and they were all incredible you know there was spoken word on them yeah, the whole yeah. bit they all all different sleeves all, all the art that went with them was amazing you had a video with um Gorbachev and Reagan lookalikes in it, you know, wrestling, wrestling, fighting in a a boxing ring. It was, it was great. It was, it was great. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was pushing the boundaries of pop music. And and that, that was, you know, it was a combination of the records, the artists going along with it, and and what Paul Morley was doing with the visuals.
1: So, you know, Paul is, you know, very experienced, done an enormous amount in the business. Trevor's had loads of hits. Relax is not is doing okayish, but not really. Mike Reed hadn't done that. Do you think there's, there's every chance that maybe it would have bubbled around and then drifted off? Yeah, I
0: think there's a possibility that might have happened. Yeah, and then hard to know, but, it, but after that, of course, everyone was interested and it became tabloid father and it exploded.
1: And, and, of course, they had all of the, uh, the outrage to go with it.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I they, mean, the moment you saw them on top of the pops, yeah. it was Game Over or, or whatever TV show came next, you know, it, it, like all great pop, like, like going back to Bowie doing Starman. Yeah. You know, like a, an alien creature.
1: Did that plant a seed with you, that that when you were looking at acts, and, and, and you're in marketing right now, so you're looking at acts and you're looking at promotion, thinking about things, assuming that the music is great, right, that we're putting out great music, but sometimes it needs more than that, and thinking about how that happens?
0: I think that's what um, Paul Morley opened a lot of people's eyes to. His mantra was he was never going to take an ad that said out now on 7 inch and 12 inch right that to him that was the absolute worst thing that you could could ever do because it was unimaginative it was uncreative it was luddite it was retrogressive it was just not within the spirit and beauty of pop music as he would see it and we've all enjoyed it yes and i couldn't agree more and I ran down the road with that concept as far as I could, <laughs> I promise you. Because you sort of could then, you know. What, what
1: was your favorite campaign at London, if, if there is one?
0: Um, the Fine Young Cannibals Roar and Cooked campaign was pretty great um, because that was, a, that was an album that went to number one in, 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 uh, in America and, and at the time sold seven million. And it, it started with um, Drives a single me crazy. called She Drives Me Crazy, which was obviously- I
1: remember waking up one morning I, I used to have my radio alarm would wake me up, you know, on, I can't remember what the stage, probably Capitol or I don't know, something. And I remember hearing that and it just, I was shocked, not in a bad way, but shocked in a, what is that? It
0: was another one of those. It doesn't sound like yes, anything else. Yes, that records. snare drum sound. The I know snare this was, drum and the guitar. Um, Jam and Lewis,
1: wasn't it? And they. Well, it
0: was. It was David Z who'd been part of Prince's, right. You know, sort of coterie. In fact, I think he was in the band. Right. And, and, and obviously, Andy and David, that were at, they were in the Finding Cannibals, who'd been in the Beat yes. and been very successful, were very studio savvy. But they, were, they were, they loved Prince, and the, and, the, and therefore they co opted that in the, you know, and and were totally into it. So it started with that, and then good thing which yes. came along as a sort of, again, a bit sort of nod to, to old soul music. But and in then, a
1: very clever way. I mean, I, yeah. you say good thing and I hear it in my head. Yeah. I can hear that bass yeah, part. Absolutely. It's like, it's... Do
0: you know what? I've tried to cover that song with various acts really? over the years and it's never had the magic mm-hmm. and never, never quite made it's it. There's
1: something about his voice and that yeah. production that's yeah. just so in yeah, the pocket. Yeah, Roland's voice was great. I mean, yeah. their
0: first album, you know, with Johnny Come Home was, was fantastic and Suspicious Minds and so on. London Records was a great place for getting artists to do covers as well. I mean, if you look at Jimmy Somerville, you know, coming out, and starting the Communards, "Don't Leave Me This Way" was one of the biggest hits on that um, label's uh, during the the lifespan, and you know, a well-chosen cover. And here's the link from what you were saying earlier on, because the A and R man for Soft Cell that would have chosen "Tainted Love" was none other than Roger Ames, who started Uh London Records. So there's there's the lineage. And
1: he's you know he's a legend in the business
0: sure is yeah barbados yeah it's uh, trinidadian, trinidadian yeah. still around yes. now involved with with a label called black butter who have rudimental among right. others uh, and yeah just i mean and he was the e- greatest e- EMI business brain he? yeah he was anr guy he started in, interna- yeah. in the international department then he was Dex's A&R guy um did soft sell as well and um then started london records and and was the owner of london records and sold it down the line but um an incredible person to be around. Right. He, he understood, he, because he'd come from a creative A&R background, he totally put the artist first, but he was the sharpest, and is the sharpest business brain too. You know, he, he was a great mentor.
1: Would, would he have been choosing songs for the X?
0: Oh yeah, without a doubt, yeah, 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 yeah. Just because he had a really encyclopedic knowledge of, of, of classic old music. right? So yeah, he would have been suggesting things all the time. Yeah, I'm sure he still does to this day. I'm sure if Rudimental are around, he'll be pushing things their way, you know. Yeah.
1: Okay, so 12, 13 years at London.
0: Yeah, so I started in marketing and then harking back to sort of the, the the days of wanting to be a performer a little bit and being in bands and loving the music and the way songs are put together, I moved into the A&R department, which to me was the most exciting place to be. I think it, with marketing, it was that it was that sort of you-have-to-deal-with-the-sales side yes. <laughs> that sort of got me down a bit in the end. Um, and, and, you know, I'd had a fantastic run there, you know, with with Colin Bell, one of Music Week, marketing campaign of the year award, that was great. It was it was for a group that never sold albums, Bananarama, that <laughs> we were always challenged. The outside world used to sort of sneer, they were great at singles and so on. And we, some bright spark came up with the idea of having real life politicians dancing to their music in, in a TV ad. And we started off life with that, not my idea, I have to say. Started off life with that before we went to a more traditional thing and right. they sold a couple of million copies of well. their best of. Yeah, when, when best ofs so, were a big deal. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so yeah so I moved into the A&R department which was a whole other sort of going back to the to the lowest rung of the ladder again and getting in my car and charging up and down the M1 and going to every town and city looking for new artists
1: who was the first act you saw that you thought you'd like to work with even if you didn't get to sign them in the, the end first part. two were Our the most f-
0: frustrating thing ever a friend of a friend managed a guy called Seal <laughs> and Seal I knew because he'd been on Adamski's number one record right and I met with John, the manager, never got to meet with Seal. And John told me that Seal wanted to make Acid House records and he wanted 100 grand for the privilege. <laughs> and I just didn't think that equated. But I did the stupid thing of never, ever meeting Seal because he and his acoustic guitar, I'm sure, would have been deadly and would have had songs for days. Yeah. And, you know, you probably would have gone. But then, again, Trevor Horn made the first album.
1: Yeah, and what so an album. So I'm
0: not so sure many other people would have would have created a record that was that good. I, I,
1: and strangely enough, I, I think there's a synergy between Seal and, and Trevor, between voice and production, that is quite a strong bond.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they've had a special relationship, I think, yeah. over the years. Yeah, yeah. And Kiss from a Rose was the other high point of that. So that was the first one. That was literally in the first month. And in the second month, I found a little band called EMF, who were playing <laughs> Cheltenham? in the Forest of Dean. And... I took everybody to see them in the Forest of Dean and not only were they playing, they had a light show, they were selling t-shirts, they had 300, 400 people in a venue when nobody did that. And it was just as plain as the nose on your face that they were gonna be huge. Unfortunately, we didn't get to sign them and their first single also went to number one in America. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, so Seal's first record and their first record. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm sort of on the right on the right track Absolutely, here. Absolutely, yeah. not None of these have got my name attached to them.
1: But you knew, right? You had an instinct. Yeah, I sort
0: of had an instinct for them, yeah.
1: And maybe this there's, there's, there's a lineage all the way back to that little mono record player and those piles of records that you're listening to and loving and, and getting to understand um, what it is about music that makes people want to buy a record, that makes people want to play a record on the radio, and that makes people want to buy a ticket to go and see someone play the songs that they love.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. But here's where it all went wrong for me. <laughs> because I'm a way better A&R man now, as a manager, than I ever was then. Uh, what kicked in was this horrible word, cool. Oh. What's cool? What isn't cool? Because bands were still very much to the forefront then, and it was all about whether you were a cool band, not a cool band, etc. That's fine if you get that right, but you can get really, really lost in that cul-de-sac. And along the way, you miss some really great music, because maybe... The person for me, you don't think he's that cool or original or whatever, right. you know. Um, and yeah, I missed a lot of stuff. And I'll be honest, I had a very inauspicious A and R career. I, I can't put my name to any massive signings. I had some things that were quite interesting. Some loads of things that didn't make it out of the starting blocks at all. And it was tough. It really is. It really is the coalface. face. You know, it's 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 the sharp edge of everything well, when, that goes when you, on. Still you, is to this day.
1: When you sign an act back then, when when you're in A and someone gives you. a a budget do you have and they say right Paul you can go and find somebody and uh, and and if we all agree you can sign them and you can have this much to start with and what is it what's the thing that you see that goes I, I can Put hundred thousand pounds into this, or whatever it is your budget is. I think you have to see a
0: germ of talent. Obviously, you have to. <laughs> yes. You have to. I mean, it was it was very much also in the area that I was interested in. It was it was very much band oriented that I was that I was interested in, as opposed to, for example, manufactured pop things. Because we're talking now about the late eighties going into the nineties, before the big dance explosion, which was not part of what I did. So Pete Tong, that was now who was now running FFRR, was sort of cleaning up in right. that area with all the house sound of Chicago that started and everything. Um, I was very much into traditional bands. I'd, I'd grown up with bands as well as pop music, love pop music. I really would love to have signed great bands. So I was up and down looking in the back of you know dirty venues every night everywhere. Um, and yeah, I mean, usually you would be you would look for songwriting, you'd look for a voice, the things that I look for now, but but probably making the mistake then that if it wasn't quite there then you were sort of betting it was like a going on a roulette table. you were sort of betting that they grow into it. Whereas I learned along the way that if it wasn't there on the demo tape, it very rarely came right. later. There were very few occasions when, you know, if that act didn't have a song that was the song at the time, they then went on to write it. Great notable example. Band I passed on. I wasn't the only one. Lots of <laughs> others did. Went to see them a couple of times in a little back room of a pub in the Falcon. They were still at Ulu. They were called Coldplay. Uh. They were called the Coldplay actually at the time. I think my cassette demo still has the Coldplay really? written on it. Uh and, yeah, they obviously didn't have Yellow in their set. In fact, I think they had one or two songs that, me- that made it to the first album.
1: So you were about 96, 97
0: now? L- yeah, slightly later, yeah. The, no, yes, 99. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah heading, towards, heading towards the end of the 90s, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, that was a bad night. Passing on Coldplay was, <laughs> could, have been a, could have been an absolute career-defining... You know, it, it, had it gone the other way, that was a career-defining But, but, but why
1: did you pass? Was it because you didn't hear the songs or was it because they just weren't very good at that point? Or
0: um, They were pretty good, what was interesting was, again, I never met them. I never met them. I mean, I could go on about the Coldplay story forever, but <laughs> Carry I, 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 I'll keep on. it short. Well, well, here's the thing. I was working at Virgin Records then. by then in A&R, and um, I liked them. I loved Jeff Buckley, and I loved Radiohead. And I went to see them, and I thought, Ooh, they're sort of ripping off Jeff Buckley and Radiohead a little bit. Mm. And that sort of went against this whole, you know, what's cool, what isn't cool right. thing that I was all about, rather than thinking the door's way wider than that. Chris in those days Chris Martin in those days Chris sounds like I know him never met the guy Um, he wasn't playing keyboard at all no piano songs in the set uh, and I met the manager a couple of times but I never got the band in to meet them to this day I think that if I'd met them and seen that great intelligence that went with it the other thing that made me absolutely weep is the, the, the week after it really started to kick off for them I listened to um, an XFM radio evening on a Sunday night and they did a takeover of that and in my office I had my favourite 50 C albums on CD on the wall they must have played 10 of them, 10 acts of that. I'm sure if they'd come in and we'd started chatting about music right. you know, the Bunny Man, uh, a certain period of Bowie, whatever it might have been Jeff Buckley that we just talked about and so on I'd love to think that we would have hit it off and I might have just taken a chance on them but you know I wasn't the only one it took right. them a lot to get signed. You know, it took, it took it to come through a publisher and to come in through uh, network in Canada and to sort of come back a bit of a boomerang before they got going. But my goodness, I do, I do yeah, remember. that first album, I, I remember I remember seeing them play the V Festival and I was walking across the field as they were on in the distance. And I, heard, I remember hearing the song Spies off the first album, which I just adore. I think it's genius. And uh, and just sort of weeping as I was walking along <laughs> thinking, this is going to be enormous. Oh,
1: that's but that's, true. you
0: know, but there you go. S- same year I passed on Craig David. Really? There you go. Wow. It, th- there, is, there are so many of them. It's not about the ones you pass on, it's about <laughs> the ones you take the chance on and do something with. Absolutely. But it, yeah, I was I had a pretty inauspicious career as an A&R person, you know, before I then moved out of that.
1: So why? what was the move then? Did you get posted again? The move was again? forced
0: upon. No, the move was forced upon me. Actually, um, I was I was really enjoying life at Virgin Records, and then it coincided with the period when the record labels went through this huge period of change around the end of the nineties, right. start of the noughties. So,
1: London was part of Virgin by that point.
0: No, London had remained PolyGram. So, I so I skipped over into, uh, to work at Virgin. Okay, I, I thought, felt like I had to get out. I was sort of flatlining a bit of London. Right they were they i was trying to sign bands they were dominant in pop and, and, and dance right. and it's fine they had a culture for both but it was very difficult to get the bands signed there because they didn't believe that you could do a good job on them so
1: you're back to leberret grove
0: back to leberret grove loving it really really loving it went to work for a guy called david boyd who was who'd become the head of virgin because he'd done, been so successful with a label called hut yep smashing pumpkins uh, the verve embrace placebo so many bands that he'd signed and and i was trying to sign all those bands so i sort of literally was was saying to him we're doing this you know in parallel is there a spot here you know can i sort of escape to to come and work where you are because because i like what you're doing more than more than the struggle i'm having over there and and he employed me he was great Uh, but he brought me in to make all the pop records he didn't want to make (laughs) <laughs> which is what you didn't want to do which is which is sort of fascinating but I got to make an awful lot of records as in make when I say make okay it's our business terminology right. I got to be the A&R person overseeing
1: right so you got to make sure the budget was spent properly and
0: yeah and, and you know did, did had a bit of creative input and tried to suggest producers to people and then also worked with people that didn't need any of my input I mean I, I oversaw a record that Mike and the Mechanics made I oversaw a Madness album you know but they just did their Belinda thing Belinda Carlisle album right. they, they did their thing and they just needed the point person at, at, yeah. the, at, the, at the record label I would never flatter myself and say that they needed anything I could bring at that point in their career because they were just fantastic artists you know but they were great to be around and I learned something from being in the studio so a lot to do with um how records are put together but an awful lot to do with how records are mixed because mixing as a whole, as you know oh, yeah. from your own experience, is a oh, whole other art arriving yes. in a room that you don't know the sonic of a studio you sit down, someone plays you a final mix turns to you and says, what do you think? Yeah. and you know, that's, there's an art in, in, learning, in having confidence in knowing can, is it any good? does it yeah. sound okay? Because sometimes it just sounds awful and you don't know why it's just gone in the wrong direction because of the sonics of what what the mixer has done, but not being hugely technical and not being able to jump on the desk, you can't quite do it yourself. You know, you could you could make some suggestions, but sometimes it's very very tricky.
1: Which is why I guess <clears throat> there are there have been and always will be a few go to people that you know the Bob Clear Mountains and the Shelly Yakus and yeah, yeah and yeah, that you some. go well we we they know what they're meant to do mm-hmm. right and mm. you kind of trust them. Mm. Um, and most of the time that you're giving them hits to mix, right? Yeah. And they'd have to really be silly to mess well, it up. Oh, you know,
0: up. it was a hit when it left my desk. <laughs> now it's with you.
1: <laughs> so it's, uh, it's the end of the 90s. You've missed Coldplay. Yeah. You... Yeah, maybe,
0: the, maybe I would have stayed at Virgin if, if I'd signed Coldplay. Yeah, but that, that's gone. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to bang on about that. But God, that is, that is something I still think about to this day. And I, I'd love to have that conversation with them one day. I was one but, of those guys. But,
1: they, uh, but you said it was, it was kind of forced on you to move on.
0: Yeah, because what was happening at that point was that the record labels were going through a massive period of change and consolidation whereby there was outside money coming into the labels. And, for example, um, EMI were buying Virgin. Right. So <clears throat> when EMI bought Virgin, they wanted to get rid of a certain number of the staff because they wanted to rationalise the place or so the people that were being installed at the top. It, it literally changed from top to bottom. Sorry, and Chairman a lot of the down artists, down. I
1: remember, you know. And,
0: yeah, what happens along with that is that new A and R people come in, and they don't want to work on all the artists that have been signed before them, apart from the ones that they have to deliver. Or the ones that
1: are selling lots of records. Correct,
0: correct. But their name is not associated with something that somebody else signed, yeah, so yeah. there's no, no value in it for them, and they get culled. Unfortunate. It's really terrible. I always think to this day it's awful. It goes on all the time. So yeah. So that was happening, so I I sort of saw an escape door and I went to work in publishing. I went to work at Warner Chapel for a guy called Richard Manners who was good enough to take me on.
1: Amazing publisher.
0: Yeah, and I I worked in publishing for the first time so I sort of learned that side of the business. And it was a short-lived run because Warner Chapel, part of Warner's, the same thing happened two years later, a consortium of American bankers led by a guy called Edgar Bronfman who was coming out of the Seagram's um, uh, brewing uh,
1: dynasty, whiskey, Canadian
0: whiskey. Warners years. so 20% of the workforce around the world went and I was loving my time at Warners I, at Warner Chapel being a publisher is quite a lovely benign simple world you get many bites of the cherry you know but I signed a guy called Damien Rice uh, and I don't think I've ever you know why oh, he's up there he really is up there and on that first album oh it, it was just incredible I must have seen him 30 or 40 times all over the world, chasing his signature. It took a year. But those gigs were like religious experiences. I, well, I, yeah. I said to him once, I, you know, I go through every emotion when I see you play live. Literally Absolutely. every emotion. Uh, and if anybody gets the chance to see Damien Rice play live, it, he is phenomenal. He is, he is something else as an artist. So
1: in <clears throat> at some point in the, in the, I can't remember, 98, 99 maybe, um, a woman called Trish got in touch with me who was uh David um oh this is on the podcast now and I uh, saw so David was, Arnold David yes right yeah. David Arnold's assistant. Yes. And she said we've got this artist we're bringing over from Ireland uh or he's come over from Ireland and he needs some gigs. Can you put him on at the Cashmere Club? So Damien... I think it was pretty much his first gig. Him and Lisa played and we cried.
0: Oh it's amazing. Right
1: and we laughed but we <laughs> but, but we mainly cried, right? Yeah. Because it yeah. I like you for me it was transcendental.
0: It was the most beautiful sound yes. you'd ever heard. Either him singing on his own or when Lisa joined him, it was amazing.
1: And I saw David two weeks ago and we had we talked about this, right? Because I remember Trish used to turn up, she had a load of like Sainsbury's carry bags with all her paperwork and her files in and sadly she's not with us anymore. Um and and David said that he funded that first record to help him out. And he you know, he was saying, Listen, you know, when when you sold enough that don't worry. But they were selling like tens of thousands of copies of this yeah, album it was, it was on cottage, their own. It was
0: total cottage industry. I found a copy at Dublin Airport. I was on a plane going to Dublin to do some scouting. And, and there was there was always an Irish section in, in the CD rack of right. Dublin Airport. And I was having a flick through, see what was going on. Because obviously, you know, Dublin was always an amazing um, hotbed of talent. We, we had a band called The Hot House Flowers when I was right. under records that were amazing. There was a group called The Picture House that I signed that did, weren't quite as successful as that, but still loved Um, and I found this thing and it was a cloth bound CD it was very you know with with, beautiful presentation and I took it back and played it and it absolutely blew me away but it didn't blow me away to the extent of seeing him live when you saw him live my goodness yeah yeah it was religious so at the
1: point that you sounded was he um, uh, working with Christian Tattersfield at that point he
0: had just started yes yeah well he was probably six months into it yeah they had they'd taken I mean the gigs had grown and grown and grown to the point where he was selling out pretty large venues already just off word of mouth I mean I saw him play in the upstairs bar of a place called The Garage in Highbury Corner and the must he was supporting on his own with his guitar uh, no fanfare and there were probably 20 people in the room and I, I, it was just dro- jaw-droppingly great and from there on in I was like I've got to work with this guy right. amazing so I then pursued him for a year um, because it wasn't the right time to do a publishing deal so that's fine so, so a lot, off he went from his cottage industry signed with Christian um it, it, in his warner's label and they started you know really motoring and we helped damien get onto um onto later which was great mm-hmm. that was a sort of help, do, do, move, you know about, and, do you um, know about do you know about
1: the drum remix story
0: yeah i, you know, I was going to say it's before they did the radio <laughs> remix of yeah go on you, <laughs> no, you no, probably no, remember no, it better than m- I, do. I
1: don't I, I i know of it um and I, I i am intrigued to know from an insider's point of view so you you, you had him on later with jules
0: yeah, I mean, he he'd been on later, and the thing started to really motor. And then, obviously, uh, Christian and the label thought we need to, we need to go to radio because nobody had actually taken this record to radio yet. Right. Um, so they wanted to take the song "Cannonball," but they just felt it needed a little bit of reworking to give it a bit of more tempo for radio. You know, so so they wanted to do um, add some drums to it. Didn't have any drums on it. You know, so. I think it was a bit of a case of over my dead body for, for Damien at the start. Yeah. Go and do what you like, and I'll disown it, but it's up to you what you do with it. And I think that's the sort of potted history. I think Tom Lord Algae was involved in that side of it and in remixing it and so on. And actually, they made a fantastic radio record out of it. And it, and for most people, that was their first introduction to, to Damien. It wasn't The Blower's Daughter or some right. of the other amazing songs on there, but that was it. And of course, once you were hooked in, you discovered the rest, and and he was off. The, it, the snowball was already coming right. down. So it was it a was
1: a pragmatic decision. It was really it was a sensible things to yeah. do.
0: Why not? And and his version was still always the album version, yeah, yeah. and and hopefully he's made his peace with it.
1: I saw Damien the last time I saw him was at Hot Farm when I was hosting the main stage in a, oh, maybe eight nine years ago. He came out in the middle of the afternoon. I don't have to tell you this because you already know what I'm going to say. But he came out in the middle of the afternoon. And I guess there was about 12,000 people or so spread out, sunny afternoon. He's not the headliner, whoever is, him and the guitar. And he turned that entire festival site into a tiny little club and people were so transfixed. It was just magical to watch. We had a big hug backstage. Um, He's such a special soul. Yeah. such a such anyway. yeah that was that wow. was
0: a privilege that was a high point and a privilege that I will always look back on of just just being in his orbit at that point and as I say some of those are some of the my favorite gigs ever yeah so that was fun so that was that was a good little Warner Chapel moment um, g- also got to work with a guy called Matt Hales who was in a group called Aqualung at the time oh, yeah and had a song called strange and beautiful uh, that was great and then worked with a, a DJ writer called Richard X also great and then lo and behold the company got bought and I got made redundant so having escaped one redundancy to two years later another redundancy I thought the writing's on the wall here I was heading into my oh really old late 30s (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I just thought I don't want to be a tick or cross on somebody's list I really don't that's the way the industry's going you know I'm probably not flavor of the month in terms of having had this stellar A&R career and therefore I don't know if I'm going to get another gig or not but um, but I was sitting on a band there was a signing freeze at um at warner chapel in as much as that everybody knew it was going to be sold and therefore they didn't want to spend a bunch of money yeah. so we were still all out doing our jobs uh seeing people like the scissor sisters and seeing all these bands that we would like to have got involved in and we just couldn't get to so i was sitting on this band called snowfield and um the manager said well you know i can see the writing on the wall what are you going to do you know it looks like you're going to be coming out of there i said well i'd love to work with you just bear with me called up an old friend of mine, Keith Armstrong, who had a label called Kitchenware, who put out Prefab Sprout Records and The Cane Gang and so on. And I was the marketing manager for The Cane Gang back in my London days. And uh, he'd done really, really well with the Lighthouse family. So he was trying to resurrect his publishing company. So I said to him, I'm about to get fired. I want you to sign this band. So that all happened, took took him to see the band. They'd changed their name to Editors during that time. So to cut a long story short, we did that. So I sort of took editors into Kitchenware and and we said, we'd like to sign you for publishing, which we did, and we'll help you put your first records out. So we we A&R'd the first records, brought the producer in, made the first album, and it got, it, it was going bigger than we were able to sort of, we didn't have the money to print up the stock <laughs> right so Keith did a, a licensing deal with Sony so Sony actually released it was a it was a, it was a um, Kitchenware Sony record and they they stayed with Sony for a few albums and so that was the sort of first thing I did in a while I was trying to be a bit more entrepreneurial right and that same week I thought I'm going to start a management company I'm not going to get back into um, into a and again and I got a phone call from an old contact who'd moved up to derby of all places mm. derby my god i'd never been to derby Who mm. was working for the council giving out small amounts of money as grants to musicians a guy called spencer wells he'd fallen off the anr radar he'd been a scout when i was uh, doing my anr thing and he said i found this lad he does open mic nights up here in derby i'm going to send you a couple of songs let me know if you want to come and see him and he sent me two songs by a 19 year old kid called james morrison and when I heard them, I just thought, my God, that's amazing. He 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 reminded me of Terence Trent Derby, who I right. loved yeah. vocally, and Stevie, who I also loved. Yeah. And he was I, both of those things it. while he was his own guy. And so I went up to see uh, Spencer, stayed at his house, and went to see James Morrison, who was large, he was doing a cover set in a band in a, in a pub in Derby for students. And they were all blown away by him. And I thought, this is my first management signing. So we collectively took took um, uh, James on, and, and that was the start of that side of life. And I think having worked with Damien and seeing the power and impact of an amazing singer-songwriter, I think some of that was being carried forward in my mind to work starting to work with James.
1: Right. Did did he have the material then when you saw him?
0: He had two songs that he'd co-written with a guy in his kitchen. He was not a songwriter by any means. He was completely new to it. He was 19 years of age. Right. He was just playing his favorite songs. You know, he was playing whatever it was Beatles and Elvis and Stevie and all of these things that he'd grown up listening to Love Terrence. Um, so that was the biggest challenge. So I my, I was working, my office was my kid's playroom at home in the house, didn't have an office with a computer and a, and a CD burner. Right. <laughs> in the days when you were still burning demos onto yeah. CDs. And that's how I started. And. Um, I used to give him his coach fare at the weekend. And so he would go, he, would live, he was living in Derby with his girlfriend. During the week, he would come and live at mine and my wife's house. He'd live in our, He'd sleep in our spare room and I'd pack him off to writing sessions. And we did that for about nine months. So every week, every Friday night, he'd go back home again. Every Sunday night, he'd arrive back at our place. So I would just take him through that learning curve that I think we've done with every artist we've subsequently worked with which was introducing him at various stages to writers that we thought would be right for him to work with right. as a massive learning curve. And we've done it with everybody, and the best of them learn from it, take it on board, make it their own, come out of every session, whether they know it or not, having learned something, and the others don't. And the ones that did went on to success, and I think some of the others just didn't quite get it and didn't grasp it, and it wasn't for everybody. Right, no. You know, we tried to make it as... L- as As little about speed dating as possible, you know. There's a very hardcore world of songwriters that will sit at one end of the sofa from the person that's in the room with them and go, "Okay, what do you got?" Yeah. And if you haven't got the goods, mentally they've already moved on within the first five minutes. And we needed to take some of our more gentle souls.
1: So, so how did you introduce them to this? How did you source the songwriters? I mean, I know you've been working in publishing for quite a while, and in yeah, the industry a long time. a bit of that, time, but, but I didn't
0: know every songwriter in town. But but that that started. That's I mean, the, the world of the co-writer was sort of really starting to gather pace then, because now you know there are five, six, seven, eight, nine writers on some songs, <laughs> and it and, and the world of the co-writer could not be more huge compared to let's say the 80s i mean if you if you were an artist in the 80s you wrote your own material right. or you did a cover yeah you didn't write with other writers particularly unless they happened to be a producer and you know bands certainly didn't bands were bands god it was an absolute insult to suggest <laughs> that they might write with somebody you know i remember being shocked when i when i heard that S- simple minds didn't write don't you forget about me oh, which was they, their didn't, first American they number didn't
1: like one. it apparently yeah right. so
0: there, there's some interesting stories along <laughs> yes. there but now it's 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 all about that. You know, we right. live in a way more collaborative world now. Uh, and I think just about every artist that we manage in our little management company does that. I don't think but, anybody doesn't co-write now because it's smart,
1: you, were, you know. You know, th- this is, uh, we're talking about 2003, 2004 now? Yeah, 2004, 2005,
0: right. yeah. Yeah, James so, put out his first, his first single and album in summer of 2006. Because
1: <clears throat> he was already at that point doing some gigs at the Bedford. I have, he was. I had this, this famous recording. If I was doing a show, and he was my opening act, and I'm doing this intro to the audiences, I sometimes am want to do saying, "The next artist you're about to see in a few years, you're going to see on TV." Saying, "Didn't we see him for free at the Bedford?" But he had. Uh, was it you? Um, you give me something. You give me something. Yeah. He, he, he had, had it at set. that point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he did. And and it was. It's a monster song. Yeah. And it was always a monster song, even before it was a hit. It's a monster song. Yeah. You know, but you were ahead of the curve with the co-writing thing because. Maybe another manager would have said, listen, kid, you know, you you need some more songs. Write some songs for six months and come back and see me. But you were being yeah. far more proactive. You're going, maybe he can't do it or maybe he will take longer than six months. Why don't we put him with people that can inspire him, that can help him, that can... Two people in a room will always produce something that each person would never have produced on their own.
0: Yeah, we, we definitely did that. We gave it... We, we by the way, you know, I said he had two songs when I met him that he'd written with a guy in the kitchen. We let that relationship go on for six months just to see if it would yield anything, and it was very clear it wasn't going to. So we had to move from that, but at least by then James was into the idea that writing was a thing, co-writing was a thing, and then we could bring him to London and and introduce him. And I'll be honest with you, it was as much about the character of the individuals as it was about going with the best writer in town at the start, because I wanted him to enjoy the process. We want all of our artists to enjoy the process because if they enjoy it at the start, then they'll embrace it. But I was lucky because one of the, one of the very first sessions we did was with a guy called Martin Brammer. Martin Brammer had been the yeah. singer in the Kane Gang, who I'd been his marketing <laughs> manager. But also he'd co-written the big hits for the Lighthouse family. Right. So he, his career had, had, had moved forward as a songwriter as well. And Martin was, I'm just new and know to this day, is, is a really lovely, soulful individual. And I knew James would enjoy that relationship. So he was my sort of fulcrum in a way. He he brought other writers into that situation. Right. Um, and that was sort of a starting point in a way. So yeah, we went through that process. And then along the way, we worked with a guy called Egg White. Oh, and yeah. Egg White was still in his relative infancy then. He'd he he'd been an, an artist and, and worked really well. Um, and I think, I think Adele's 19 had come out, so Chasing Pavements and some of that material that he'd written, co-written, had come out, and that very much gave us a blueprint of the type of person to work with. You know, James was a combination of soul and an acoustic singer-songwriter, really, so it was really angling into those areas. You know, we knew, we absolutely knew that we didn't want to make, for example, a Jamiroquai record with him, that it was gonna be all about programming and all about the sound of the track. It was always gonna be about these beautiful, organic instruments, Around him, you know, um, the acoustic side of life that would show off that voice. I, I sort of heard something in his voice that, that I was convinced would do that. So during that whole period, those were the kind of people that we, we wanted to work with. And we were lucky enough that it worked. I mean, Egg wrote, co wrote You Give Me Something and Wonderful World, the first two singles with him. And then through Martin Brammer, we met a guy called Steve Robson and together they wrote The Pieces Don't Fit Anymore, right. which is, I think, an astonishing song for any debut record. And it was telling James's life story at that point in his relationship and so on. And, and you know, he's, it takes all, you, you really need the stars to align in a, in a co-writing session. You know, you've got to remember these guys, jo- jobbing, let's, let's do them a disservice, let's call them jobbing songwriters, but, you know, that's not to do them down. No, but They're um, sitting there, that's what they do all day long. Every day of the week. So whatever comes through the door on a Monday morning, they need to be inspired by, because otherwise they're going, what am I doing different this week that I didn't do last week? Right. So, you know, we, we were always encouraging James to go and just have the opening couple of lines even of a song, even if he, he was a, a songwriter in his infancy, but, but to be able to inspire someone with some comf- concepts or, you know, I really want to write about this or this happened in my life. So Wonderful World, for example was a song that James conceptualized because he was living in Acton. We brought him down to London when he got got his record deal. He was living in Acton and he got the bus to Egg Whites in Shepherd's Bush. And on that bus, he saw a guy who was deaf and was pissed, being sort of badly treated by the passengers on the bus, being ignored and everything. And that's where the concept for It's a Wonderful World but I can't feel it right now. That's where that came from. Took that story into Egg and they wrote that song that day. So you need you need the stars to align. You need your, your, your songwriter to be on good form, feeling inspired. You need your artist to go in there and be able to have something to turn that on. And then they just need to hit it that oh, okay.
1: day. Okay. Rewind just a fraction. You said you brought him down, he's got the deal. How did he get the deal? Um, I mean, I know you've been in the industry a long time, so you know a lot of different people, yeah. but you're still you're on the other side of the fence now, right? When you were in the A&R department, everyone's happy to take a call. Yeah, absolutely. But now you're a manager, right? So everybody yeah. knows you want something. You want them to come and see your artists, that you want some studios, whatever.
0: Well, we didn't have very much when we started. As I say, we, we, we were really in our infancy with songs with James. So we brought him down to London. We were going through this process that lasted probably a year of songwriting. Some people didn't work and then we'd gather the odd song and that was quite good. But what actually happened was word was going around within the, the the writing community that this guy was around and he was a major talent. And from the writers to their managers, and A&R people talk to songwriters right. managers all the time. And I was lucky enough that word got back to a couple of labels, but it particularly got back to um, Polydods who we called Colin Barlow, um, who, who was the right kind of A&R person for this act. Uh, I, I, I knew it. I knew he would be from from the sort of things he'd signed, but what we didn't want to do was go and knock on people's doors and ask for anything. Right. We wanted to sort of let it let it blossom and let people hear about him. And we were doing gigs like yours, partly yeah. for practice. We you know, we were doing a lot of stuff under the radar because James needed to practice yeah. in terms of he didn't know what to say when he stood on stage at that point. So just to just to, to work in the material, to see which songs were working, to know how to communicate with an audience, to get the confidence. I mean I remember the very first gig we did for for fun was a Tuesday night. We packed packed his guitar into the back of my car and we drove to Loughborough Students' Union (laughs) on a Tuesday night where they had a so-called acoustic night. And the football was playing on the TV, on the massive screen above where he was singing. But the sound was down. We managed to get them to turn the sound down, which was very nice of them. (laughs) And it was like, could we get their attention? Could we get their attention? You know, We had exactly the same thing later on with James Bay where he used to go and play... Um, a pub in Kentish Town on his way back home to Hitchin after he'd done songwriting sessions and he used to turn up there and uh, if he could get the guys at the other end of the bar to turn around from watching the Arsenal game and listen to what he was doing, we knew we had a good song
1: <laughs> So <laughs> so, uh, so yeah we yeah. we
0: were we were sort of biding our time and trying to collect better material for James, you know which all went towards the first album and then word was getting out and we were just just giving him the time and space to become a real artist rather than a guy that was you know, playing a few open mics and with and, a and, great and voice, and with amazing potential, yeah, yeah. but the potential that needed developing, and I suppose that's what development is in in our terms. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, did you get a call? The, the call. Yeah, we is... got a call.
0: We got a call from a couple of people, and they said bring him in. And so we'd sort of prepped him. We knew which songs we wanted him to play. So we went and sat on some sofas in record labels, and he whipped out his guitar and played two or three songs. And at that point, for me, it was always game over. I mean, it was like if you can't see the potential in that, but not everybody did. You know, Sony didn't, some others didn't, Colin absolutely did. And we hit the post with another label within the same group who we thought were gonna sign him, but Colin and then David Joseph who was running, right. who was, who was running they were co-MDs before J- David oh, really? went on to be chairman. Uh, they were having an absolute purple patch at Polydor with, with Snow Patrol and, and all sorts of amazing music, take that and all that stuff. Um, they signed him and they were good to their word, and and Colin was a great influence on the A and Ring, and just bringing his experience of having made a lot of records to bear, you know, knowing when the right time was to take James to L.A. just for that experience, just the experience of being in the studios and meeting people over there that he might not have ended up working with, you know, but just to meet them and do the odd session and so on with with no pressure on it whatsoever. So that that was all great. He chose the producer for the record, Martin Toreffi who. Who made right. made nearly all the first record? He was coming off the Katie Tunstall record, which had been brilliant. So,
1: did you do that in uh, in Labrador Grove? In Kensington, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: great, great, great. Uh, He's got know, such a great space you, there. Well, you it? walk in there and it's full of acoustic instruments. Yeah, it's the, it, it, that it screams lovely old at you, piano the record up, that you want right, to make. Yeah. yeah, there's natural daylight, and we he he worked with a string section from Nashville, uh, called the Nashville Strings, and we brought them over and they played literally played live. And there was a lot of live tracking going on on that record. But having said that, you give me something, the record itself, we tried it and it didn't work at all. We went back to Egg White's original demo, overdubbed some strings on it and mixed it and put it out. Really? It was that demo that, made, that, that became the record.
1: Why do you think that is?
0: Because he captured something that happens sometimes in, in writing sessions when they put down the demo at the end of the day and there is an absolute unbridled lack of fear and what goes down, just you can't beat it, whether it be the vocal, whether it be the sound, whether it be the warmth of the, the drum kit or the, with all the creaks of the piano and whatever it is, and there's a magic to it. It's like, you know, you talk to, I had the privilege of talking to a couple of couple of the, I, I had the pri- absolute privilege last year, James Morrison went and did the Stax Prom at the Royal Albert Hall for um, Mark Cooper and the guy and, and Jules Holland, the guys right. behind later, and Eddie Floyd was there. Eddie Floyd at 80 years of age, I had the privilege of sitting with him backstage and saying to him, "Tell me about recording those songs." Oh. And he said, "You got one go. Yeah, You got one go. Instruments there, singers around the mic. he'd come from a doo-wop generation where yeah. you got one go, you all sang, one mic,
1: the mic was yeah. on,
0: play and record, off you went. and that was it. Your day was done. They moved on to the next record. So it was that. it was that spirit, you know, amazing.
1: So you went to record, went to went to radio with the first record. Yeah, they didn't didn't bite. They didn't like it. They no,
0: we, we we were straight out the blocks. I mean, I mean, the the setup of that record was, I wondered about having to put out like a like a um, a taste maker EP right. just to just to deliver James to the world. You know, you didn't expect to come out the blocks. You certainly don't these days. But then, it was still doable. But it wasn't right. it wasn't a given. But we we had a, we. The label came up actually, it was a very good idea, with uh, with a residency idea. So so he, he we had a residency just off Oxford Street in a little club of about 300 people. And over the course of a month, each Wednesday night, they brought down all of the media and James and his band play. But the very first performance when we put that band together was at your place, the Bedford. That was right, the yeah. very first time in that great room mm. that, that, that all of those songs had been played by a full band. Wow. And it was a sort of friends and family gig for James. And, uh, and, and it, I remember it to this day. it was It was Me 2006. Was, yeah. Absolutely amazing. So. Um, and then he was off, off to the races then. Yeah, because, so, you know, that record was a success. It was, it was on all the radio formats. And, uh, and we got invited to lots of nice things. And, you know, Rod Stewart said nice things about him. And, and, and you, were, you know, you were off and running at that point. So we came with You Give Me Something, which was a top five. Put the album out, went to number one, and then came Wonderful World and then Pieces Don't Fit and and so on and so on. I think there were about five singles on that record. And and which managed is, to make that. Which work is amazing, around the world. isn't it? Yeah. But what is, of course, what you don't take into account is that James was twenty one at the Brits when he won his Brit off the back of that record when he was having his first number one record. Mm-hmm. And you know that's a massive learning learning curve for any artist. You, you know, we're all going at 100 miles an hour and we are all immersed in it. They are to a degree. Artists are, but they are immersed in it in a different way. And sometimes you've got to remember that they need a bit of breathing space around this stuff yeah, because yeah. it's going sometimes faster than they want it to go. And they are getting on. They're getting up at half past four in the morning, getting on a plane to Germany and to Japan and to whatever, you know. And they've never been out of the country before. To do, you know, to go and perform and do promo and be on TV shows and so on. I remember, I remember flying to Japan that Christmas for one day to do a TV show and flying home again. And you know, that stuff's tiring. Yes, for for an artist when he's got to sing and look after his voice and all that. So, yeah, yeah, that was a, you know, James was a learning curve for me because it was really my first management client. You know, and the success of that was the first, the biggest success I'd had, and um, I was able to take all of that and then when we brought on other clients, and we, we seem to so, have cornered the market in solo males.
1: Yeah, well, th- uh, you know, we, that, that's something... I applied
0: it to all of those people. That, we were able to play uh, it as, as a company to all those people yeah. and, and see the pitfalls, hopefully.
1: Whenever I think of you and, and, and artists that you manage, it's always about the voice <clears throat> um, and the songs.
0: Yeah, always, right? always, always. It's I just don't think, historically, you never get away from that as a starting point with any act that's that's gone on to be successful over a period of time. You know, yeah, you... Sounds silly, but you can have a hit if you can't sing that well. Yeah. But you can't have lots. Yeah. You know, and if the, if the songs aren't quite there, you, you're never really going to go all the way.
1: Who was the, the next actor you started working with?
0: Well, really, the next one that, that, that was meaningful was, was John Newman. Right. Who came to, to us more fully formed. Yeah, really more fully formed. John came, he was living in a house uh, with a couple of guys who were forming a band called Rudimental.
1: He'd ah. been, he, John,
0: John came from Settle in the Yorkshire Dales had been to Leeds College Music for a year so he was quite good technically played piano, played a bit of rudimentary guitar but he had this voice, again, an amazing, unique yeah. voice you, you just know it when you hear it and he had put himself together a little band up in North London and he had like almost like a soul review going on when you went to see him you know, again, had a bunch of songs he'd written wasn't the final album or anything, but but with him he wore what he wore. He had his black and white suit. He told the he told the band what to wear. He told people how to behave on stage. He really was marshalling that in a really old school way. And he was 19, 20 years of age. Wow. And that was phenomenal. So at the same time as we were sort of, again, putting him into that songwriting process, which we did, he created this song um, with Rudimental, which became their first record and went to number one. So in terms of, uh, and that, that, the demo of that, actually, was on, was on his demos when we were shopping around, and it wasn't obvious that that was going to be the thing that, that started him off. I mean, we thought, this has got a real shot. Right. But Rudimental hadn't put anything out at that point. They were a brand-new act. The sound was new, and it wasn't a finished record. So we sort of had that lurking as, like, track four on our demo tape that we were taking <laughs> yes. around. But, but, you know, John... They'll get into
1: it. John was a bit special.
0: That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the age-old maxims come round. You know, still useful. Still very useful. But yeah, I mean, Island, Island just saw John and just thought, we, we really, really want this. And then we were lucky. in as much as the rudimental track came out, Feel the Love, flew to number one. He had another one ready to go, right. uh, which was called Not Giving In, which was one, he was one of two feature vocalists on it. And so we were sort of, as far as the media were concerned, it gave us a a real, a real starting point because the entry into the media, once you've done all the, all the work with getting the music together, that's just the first part of the story, yeah. as you know. You know, how you present that to the media and getting past the gatekeepers is really hard.
1: So with James Morrison, the song's so good, the voice is so good. You've got Polydor and their whole marketing team behind it. And and I'm guessing, you know, people have an artist on a major label coming with a track that good, they get excited and want to play it. And with John rudimental is exploding and then his single is is so so radio friendly it's 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 one of the stickiest things I've ever heard right it's just like it's it feels so good but did you still have to work to get past the gatekeepers on this or or
0: no it was it was way easier because if you know you're always in your mind thinking where is this record gonna start I mean I'm talking slightly in old money here now because we're talking Still about radio being the absolute dominant force before streaming had started, so we're going back to the you yeah, know but, uh, but only, only a few eight years, years or seven years right, ago, right? But, but things have so changed in the last couple of years that yeah. now that becomes part of factoring in your your plan because now when we look at the development of an artist, we're adding a whole extra year onto it right. because you don't want to go to the media now because your stats, your how many streams you've got is so public that if you're t- you're going to talk to a radio plugger and you haven't got much of a story but you've got a great record and they look online and they go, yeah, but you've only got 5,000 streams on Spotify. Yeah. You're not going to get going. You're not going to get past that first gate. So you are waiting and you're looking for lots of other avenues in. But then it was like, okay, you used to think in terms of who's going to play this record first? What, what's our entry point into radio? And because of his age, it was very much Radio 1. So it was all about Zane Lowe in those days. So Zane Lowe had played... Rudimental, hammered, rudimental. It was perfect for his show. So when John came with his own first record, it was obvious that's where it was going to start. And lucky enough, you know, he, he went for it. And then that was our route through to to day daytime uh, radio right. exposure. And then Capital came on board and, and 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 we were off. You know, it was a record that t- had lots of touch points as, as far as the media were concerned. It was very cool. You know, we picked up on his northern, his mum, his mum and he were into northern soul. Hey, there you go. <laughs> Uh, resonated with me again. So the first video had a had a tint of Northern Soul yeah. about it. He was a Northern Soul in my in my view, you know. And and he came with the idea. He absolutely developed that idea with with the video director. Um, so that it's funny, you know, when when things are going well, they seem easy. You know, <laughs> yes. when you're short of ideas, when things aren't going well, every, every idea seems hard fought. But but you know, we were on a roll and and we had a lot of backing and 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 we were able to sort of um, move through those creative ideas pretty seamlessly and he was a great live performer that's the other thing people were coming to see him straight w- away and
1: were you boom, expanding your team we at off. this point
0: yeah we were i mean i mean really um we've gone through a few changes actually at the company and really what came out the other end was was ryan and i who's, who's ryan lofthouse who's my partner now um uh, uh, came out of what was the, the the old business which we sort of pulled apart because it wasn't quite working but we kept all our artists changed the name and, and started small again so we had james morrison and ryan Ryan came on board and we had a whole chat about, you know, where to find artists these days. And within the space of, I think, three months, he'd gone off and found George Ezra and James Bay. Oh, wow. Because we talked about the music colleges. We'd actually, as a management company, had quite a bad experience with the Brit School, whereby we just didn't feel as though, given we'd had some success and given we sort of seemed to know what we were doing, we thought we might have a, you know, they might sort of welcome us with open arms, and they really didn't. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't, we didn't want any special favors right. we just wanted a dialogue yeah, yeah. that was meaningful and and whereby we might you know get p- past this sort of brick wall and you know if you're listening Brit school please feel free to take that on board because because there's so many amazing talents have come out of of that place but i just our experience of it wasn't good so we sort of went well where else where else are, are young artists and young singers performers right. and and we Caught onto this institution called BIM, you know, which was which was Brighton Institute of Music and Bristol Institute of Music, and it's now down in Guildford, and it's now in which, Manchester, and it's now in Dublin, and it's now really spreading. But Brighton was the one we sort yeah, of latched onto.
1: That which was originally Kevin Nixon, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah, Kevin Nixon, who'd
0: been a manager in the business, a, a Cooler shake, huge, that's yeah, that's it. right, yeah. hugely experienced, and it was a fantastic idea, and it was a, a you know, it, at its very basic, it was a way for. Um, people leaving sixth form to not have to face if they were musicians or, or wanted to be in the performing arts on any level, technicians or whatever, they could go and find somewhere that they didn't have to face the real world. Yes, and either could sit in their bedroom twiddling away on guitar all day long, which is what James Bay did, and and George Ezra did, or could go and learn, you know, how to how to stage a, a performance and what the technical side was or whatever. Right away from the pressure of parents and everything else. So anyway, Ryan took himself off to, to, to Bristol and to and to, um, and to Brighton and lo and behold scouted these two guys at different times and, and they just fitted our remit. I was having a conversation with Ryan um, probably a week before he found James Bay that said, God, imagine someone coming along now who's a singer-songwriter that's also got that really unique playing ability. You know, we haven't had a, a Knopfler or a Clapton or or, you know, one of those and okay you know that that's that's a tall order um but lo and behold james bay came along and boy can he play well you you might call it cosmic ordering though yes absolutely so so that was you know again the stars aligned there i think john mayer was in the back of our mind as well A british john mayer was definitely in the back of our mind and and he came along and he came along more fully formed we we went i mean we 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 got it we got this, you know. we'd, we'd formed a, a, a really nice relationship with the people down there, um, Wendy at BIM. A, a, we'd had a great dialogue with, the dialogue that we were looking for in, in other places and hadn't had. And she said, we've got an end of term thing coming along. Everybody gets to perform, everybody forms a band, blah, 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 you, we're gonna send you, I'm gonna send you a video of a couple of people, but check this guy out, see what you think. And they sent us a video of James Bay playing a Stephen Stills song on the top of a roof and he had the hair and the hat and the acoustic guitar and there he was performing and playing And we were like, how quickly can we get down there? This is, this guy's amazing. What's, what's the catch? So we turned up on a, on a cold night and, and lo and behold, Bim do what they did. And there was a whole performance. We are about seven, seven performers in. James got on stage and he was fronting a band and I, and he started playing and I think, and singing. And within literally before we got to the first chorus, I, I turned to Ryan and said, if we don't take this guy on, we should give up now because we don't know what we're doing. Right. It was so obvious. It was, he was just amazing, and we literally just sort of grabbed him at the end. And I think we, I think our adrenaline was going so much we probably pinned him to the wall with enthusiasm, <laughs> you know. Um, and he was just still the same as he is now, lovely uh, and diligent and all those things. And again, someone that was not well versed in songwriting himself, you know. He he'd grown up listen, you know, listening to his dad's Stones collection, Clapton, right. you know, all of that great lineage. He was into all of the '70s bands, and then was moving through all of the the Laurel Canyon artists and so on, you know, and and, and was just able to play that stuff backwards um, and was a huge talent. But he, he needed to, he needed material and he needed the language of songs that right. were not written in the 70s. Yeah. And again, it was the, it was exactly the same job. We, 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 we used all of that experience or what we thought was our experience from James, really, um, and, and applied it to, to this James. And yeah. Same thing happened.
1: <clears throat> and a series of residencies at the Bedford.
0: Yes, indeed. I mean, again, <laughs> Which were someone, amazing nights. Yeah, I mean, listen, we've always come to you with our... With our Not with that our I'm looking for flattery. Nearest but, and dearest. But, no, but it's, but, uh, it's the environments that you put on and the environment that you create for artists that... And we don't want anyone really to, to, to be too critical at that point. We right. know it's a really safe, lovely environment where they can just express themselves. Mm. They don't have to play for too long. They don't have to say too much. But all of those things we were behind the scenes working on. And uh, we always, yeah, we always brought them down to the nights that you ran, <laughs> yeah, and you were kind enough to do that,
1: well, but you know there's a trust factor right because everyone you ever arrive with is always amazing, and that and it fits kind of what the kind of things I program anyway is what what I understand, what I like,
0: yeah, so. George Ezra was a little different because George was was ensconced in Bristol. So right. so and and George was absolutely Ryan's baby. It was Ryan's like going, I want to express myself with with one of these guys and George was was his guy. He found George again not not looking like he sounded. You right, know, yeah, yeah. sounding like a blues guy from the Delta. Yeah. yeah. You know, and 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 being 19, 20 years of old and blonde and and looking like George does. But again, this unique voice, unique, unique voice, and an aptitude and embrace songwriting, you know, working with other people. But actually, unlike some of the other people that we worked with, he, I think, he formed a bond with an individual fairly quickly. So Joel Pot, who'd been in a, an act called Athlete,
1: yeah, I know Joel well,
0: is is George's go-to guy for songwriting. Oh, I, I love mean, Joel. as well as George can, you know, does his own thing as well as the others do, but. Uh, uniquely talented but Joel really you know George found a kindred spirit there and the, and their bond is strong to this day you know
1: just rewinding a little bit to, to James Bay residencies which one led to the deal I oh, I guess I'm, I'm talking publishing I'm
0: yeah well a funny one with James again needed James was amazing J- James was James we'd already inherited this this work ethic with James whereby when he was at BIM down in Brighton he would go and do two, three, four open mic nights of an evening in Brighton where there were loads, just to practice, just to get up and play. So what was happening was when it, when we, he was still at BIM, but, and so we sort of co-opted him into, into writing sessions in London, but he was living in Hitchin. So he would buy a train ticket in Hitchin, and to make it worthwhile, once he'd done his co-writing session that day, he'd go and do a couple of open mic nights on the way home right. before he got his train out of London back up to Hertfordshire. And he used to go and play, and he would try out the song he'd written that day and the songs he was writing, really good test. And he went and used to, one of his stop-off points was a pub in, in, uh, near the Forum in Kentish Town. And it was that pub where the TV was on and the football was on. Had a tiny little stage, but he could get up and play three or four songs and he knew it was almost guaranteed he could get up and play there. On his way home one evening, he was playing and a guy was sitting there and he had a big bit of, Kit and and he popped it on his shoulder and it was it was a camera and he made a video of James. He said to him at the end of the evening, "I'm a professional cameraman. Do you mind if I just do this? And and um, and you know I'll I'll pop it up for you if you like." And James was like, "Fine. We hadn't we hadn't even really st- we'd sort of the A and R community had been aware of James, but they really weren't biting, and we couldn't understand why. But we hadn't gone and really knocked hard on doors. We were we were going in to see them when they wanted us." But our policy was never to sort of go and ask for anything. We, we were just getting on and developing James. And when the time was right, it would all happen. But I think what was happening was the scouts were coming along and, oh, oh I don't really like his hat. Oh, I don't really like his, his hair. That's not in. And don't really like – he hasn't really got the songs yet, has he? You know, And whereas Ryan and I were going, he plays like a dream. He sings like a dream. He's got an unbelievable image. He's an amazing, amazing-looking guy. And he's really, really diligent. If you talk to him about music, he's encyclopedic. What's not to like? Right. <laughs> so anyway – we were sort of, you know, we weren't really getting very far with getting him a deal in the UK, but, you know, it was, it was slow going. And, by the way, the other thing we were thinking of is we've just broken two singer-songwriters. We've got another one that people are interested in. It's what we do. Yes. You know, <laughs> sort of trust us here, yes. everybody. You know, give us give us some leeway. But anyway, it wasn't happening. Um, so this guy pops up this video on YouTube, and lo and behold, he gets seen in New York by a label. Really? Yeah. They'd sort of vaguely heard about this guy, and they looked at the, at the video which had had about 30 views, and they went, fly him over. <laughs> so that was Republic Records, who were oh, wow. number one label in, in the US in terms of, you know. So Ryan and I went over there, and we'd sort of had a bit of interest in the UK, you know, Sony was sort of sniffing, and a, a label called Relentless was, was sniffing, and actually um, Decca was sniffing, you know, <laughs> and, and looking around, but it wasn't necessarily quite where we wanted it to be. We took James over, he did a showcase for them in there, Little, They had a little room with a stage, which was lovely. He loved it, a couple of amps in there. He played for them, and they just locked the doors and said, we're signing him, you're not going home. Wow, And That's on that trip, wow. they bought him. He'd seen a guitar, he'd seen the Epiphone guitar well, that the, became the sort of emblem of the first album. He'd seen it in a record store, and he happened, to, in all innocence, he, he happened to say it to them, to the A&R guy, in a passing What have you been doing this afternoon? I went down to Bleecker Street, killed a bit of time. Oh, Matt humanov guitars, amazing, famous. Saw this amazing Epiphone 53, you know, blah, 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 blah. Epiphone Casino in there, great, loved it. Anyway, couldn't afford it, went on. The guy bought him the guitar and shipped it. It was ready waiting in England when we got back. And it was that's just one style. of those magic that, moments. That's, that's like the moment. 80s again. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we were able to do a deal with them. We, it was very exciting, signing to a label in New York. But, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? We just couldn't see what was wrong. And nobody else was really all over us for, for James.
1: And and you would think, right, You you've absolutely proved your ability to find artists and know what you do and have hits that they you will be given more credit for that
0: <laughs> what can i say you know i mean look there's no free lunch you know <laughs>
1: um uh paul we, we've um we're nearly at two hours wow okay really yes
0: we are at eight o'clock goodness me so you're gonna um, have to edit this
1: no this is great as it is <laughs> Oh, I might do. It might be a two-parter.
0: Clethops needs to be cut down. Coldplay needs to. <laughs> Nothing, be cut Nothing.
1: Nothing's being cut down. It's all amazing stuff. Listen, you. Uh, your stories are amazing, and and um, you speak so eloquently, um, and uh, and and you're so well informed. I'm loving what I'm hearing. Uh, let's just maybe let's bring pause. It, No, no. Let's bring it up to date for just a little bit okay. to finish the next ten sure. minutes or so. So james morrison james bay george ezra john newman yeah are the kind of now the the co- uh, so how did the george ezra thing happen
0: well it was was all about ryan and his abilities really you know he went and found him at, at bim bristol and the great thing um was was developing an act outside of living in london really because george between them george and and, and Je- um and ryan put on what became a famous now residency in a pub in Bristol, and I actually don't know, the can't remember the name of the pub, yeah. but it was somewhere that, that weren't putting on gigs, so George went in there on the first week, took all his mates in there, it was amazing, it grew week on week, month on month, to the point where it was just a massive party by the end, so it was an amazing thing to do, but um, yeah, that that just grew and grew, so Sony did, a, did the deal with George, and then uh, the A&R guy, by all accounts Ollie Hodge had this, an, an, an Alison Donald, experienced person, had this amazing idea to say, why don't you get an interrail ticket and go off around Europe and go and get some experience of life. Hmm. And lo and behold, he never got to Budapest, but he wrote the song about it, <laughs> which is true. So uh, they they did a great job and, and, and we, hope, we hope for Ryan and his behalf that he's going to be number one right. with a song called Shotgun this week on his second album although this amazing although this
1: podcast may go out in a month or so's time that's okay but it, yeah. well, it, it here, was great at number 1 last in June yes last <laughs> um who else do you have on the books at the moment
0: well it's now about it obviously it's about it's about working with all of those artists on second albums third albums and so right. on but we're also excited with with some new talent we have so we have an amazing young female artist finally it's not through to <laughs> trying we found a female artist to work with we're we are not misogynistic in the office <laughs> in any way. Uh, we've looked long and hard. And we have an artist called Lily Moore, um, right. who I think is really, really special, found by, by two guys in our office who are sort of coming through as new managers and w- do, do we're you, in business with them. Do you them. find it
1: exciting nurturing new management talent and yeah, new industry talent?
0: Yeah, really exciting. I mean, I mean, uh, the, the two guys, Josh and Chris, that I'm talking about now have, have become uh they start off as our assistants and day-to-day managers on the other artists and because we have an open plan office everybody hears every conversation that goes on and i hope there's a there's a <laughs> steep learning curve that goes with that good and yes. bad you know but but yeah you see what you see everything that goes oh, yeah. on um so they found a young artist called Lily Moore singing an Etta James song online uh when she was 16 and a half and she was just about to start an A-level course, part of which, again, involved being at um, a thing called Access for Music, which Mm -hmm. is a a thing for artists in London. And Lily is a unique talent, but needed, you know, lots of space uh, to allow her to finish off her education, and we worked with her in her summer holidays to do all of that stuff that we say that we do, and we continue to do. She really has got it. And and she's played the Bedford. She has played the Bedford.
1: With some very uh, unannounced little warm-up spots.
0: Yeah, again. You know, look, all, all, of these, all of these artists at that point in their life need as many gigs as you Absolutely. can give them. And they needed many gigs without being under the microscope. I yeah, mean, yeah. interestingly enough, at this moment, Lily is between having released her first four-track EP and recording her second four-track EP, but she has just done a run of back-to-back tours, which was um, Vance Joy into George Ezra into James Bay as main support now that again is just incredible stuff and she was ready for it you know but again the learning curve is is you can't just get on stage and do that stuff you know you've got to have done all of the all of the many many shows under the radar that we that we try and ask our artists to do
1: before we finish um two things uh one is things have changed radically in the music industry in the last two years maybe three years
0: yeah i think it changed every six months now
1: uh yeah it's it's almost scary one thing never changes you need some music that's that's still the currency of this industry but even within that things are changing you know for for my taste this there's a kind of lot of mumble rap happening that i hate and i've even i I think i I heard a little bit of the jay-z and beyonce thing and that seems to be the same it's like nobody's singing anymore it's like Sorry, I know I'm offending a lot of people by saying that who like it and understand it. I'm, I'm old, I don't get it, but, but everything is changing very fast. How do you see your role as manager with your artists in this changing face of the industry?
0: Um, I think that things are changing. I think there's a place for still for every single type of music to have its own lane. The lanes that you're talking about of that genre just because of the way that the algorithms work on the streaming services seem to push those thing, that music um, particularly US-based, to the forefront, which means, for example, if you're a band at the moment, you feel like there aren't many channels for you because the way playlists are, and, the, and we live in a world now of playlists, you know, and it's going to be really fascinating over, over, over the current generation and what comes up, uh, um, the generation that comes after them, just to see how they, is the album a dead format? Do they actually gravitate towards the album anymore? Is it just about having 300 songs on a playlist and that becomes your album? things are things are changing weekly you know youtube announced last week that 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 you know that that the streams of of views on on youtube will count towards the chart Um, but this is all playing this is all playing marketing games really i mean music has never been more prevalent it's in it's everywhere you walk down the street it's in every supermarket it's on every movie it's on every tv ad it's everywhere you go you know so which is amazing it's amazing for, for for musicians and i suppose the streaming side of life and all of the social networking side of life has sort of democratised music in as much as anybody can put music up. It's now the, the difficulty is navigating right, yes. that absolute plethora of music. It's good that you don't just get pushed 25 songs on a playlist that a radio station wants to play anymore and you know, you're know you crying out listening to that going, oh, I don't really like that music, I want to I listen to something way more interesting. Whereas you can go and find an amazing artist called Rex Orange County on Spotify who's probably never been near radio but has put tons of music up there for people to listen to and people are finding it right you know so so um yeah the the, it's just the delivery of the music is changing and we're obviously moving towards you know look most of us have got a subscription to sky Mm -hmm. and it's become part of our life for movies or netflix or whatever it is that's what music is now it's it's hopefully 10 quid a month for all you can eat i mean the weird thing is now you know you've got the entire history of music on your phone Yes. It's, it's more like where do I go? Yes, you know, absolutely. And, and the guidance of spot, uh, the guidance of playlists on all the streaming services, Apple, Spotify, the whole lot of them, is great actually, because you know I discover music from listening to the stuff my daughter is listening to on her playlists, because th- there'll be a ton of stuff on there that I've never heard of. But our job now is to, is to still try and set up the artist to get because there are gatekeepers there. You've got to you've got to be on right. those playlists. There's the new gatekeeper. Yes. Uh, is my track going to be on those playlists? Is are we waking up on a Friday morning at six a.m. going? Are we on New Music Friday, right. which is many people's go-to discovery list? So it's the discovery element amongst all the noise that's out there, and you know people are looking in so many different directions now. We're we're all as artist managers trying to point them towards our artist and uh, and that. And some of the ma- some of the maxims don't change. You know we, we try and work on the live side with all our artists because we feel as though if we can develop the live live side and get word of mouth going on, on amazing performers and sell tickets and those tickets become bigger gigs, we can go to the media and go, it sort of doesn't matter what you think, it's happening, go with it. Yeah, yeah, Because there are 750 people in the Scala and they've arrived here for some reason. Look, you haven't played them yet. Get on board. Yeah.
1: Okay, and the final thing uh, I would like to ask you is some words of advice for young musicians, songwriters, people kind of looking to make a start in the industry as we are right now what what i won't give you a number what what num what what things would you advise young? i mean and you talk a lot on panels and i know i'm sure people come up to you all the time and say what what have i got to do but there must yeah. be some things that you've experienced that you think artists should be focusing on
0: yeah i mean i i think i think that that gaining experience of performing and gaining experience of songwriting, even if it's with four of your mates in a bedroom, is the starting point. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing covers and that whole world. I think anything that can, that can help you develop your singing voice, anything that can help, help you develop your, your performance, I think they are the starting points. They're the building blocks. For God's sake, don't go and pay anyone loads all your savings to go and make a video. When you're trying to get a demo together, it's just just a waste of time. You know, just just use your, use what little money you have in in the best possible ways.
1: Now, something else that artists ask me all the time, as you can imagine, at the Bedford, is, can you suggest any managers, Tony? And <clears throat> and I always answer this. I never suggest anyone, right? Because, well, first of all, I think it's um, I think it's all it's very personal, right? So, the the people that I think are good managers might not be the the good manager for you. But I heard someone say once that when you're ready a manager will find you and in a weird way that's kind of everything i've heard you say is exactly that right
0: yeah i think i think that i actually think the business is pretty sophisticated for people that, that i think there's a level of sophistication and discovery um, and there are channels for people that are actually pretty good so i think if you're quite good somebody along the way will know somebody that they can recommend yeah. you to If you're not very good, it might not happen. And that's just a fact, you've got to face that. Not everybody is is born to be an amazing performer, amazing writer, and going to go all the way. Not to say that that you shouldn't try, but equally, you know, don't be surprised if a few doors get slammed in your face, because you've got to be thick-skinned, really thick-skinned. But yeah, I mean, as I said to you, you know, when I was doing my my little demos and putting 10 10 songs and sending them off to, without a name on them, I didn't have any concept about finding a lawyer or finding a label or finding, you know, I didn't even know what a promoter was, someone to go and talk to to get a gig. So there are avenues and people will, fi- people will find you. Right. I mean, the business is sophisticated. It wants to find you. You know, when a band forms in Hull, I get to know about them because somebody will tell me or somebody will tell somebody that somebody knows somebody that will tell me, Right. you know. So yeah, I mean, it's an exaggeration, but you know what I mean.
1: But No, but you found someone in Derby, right? Yes, you know?
0: through, through an old contact, Saying this guy's great, come on! What do you think? So there it is in action. Yes, Yes. exactly. So so get out there, get out. You know, the the social media gives you the chance to actually be online, but also get out, get out and play, get out and and form lots of bands, play with people that may not end up being the people that you end up playing with, but it'll be great experience.
1: Uh, Is there any artist out there that you wished you managed?
0: Oh, tons, (laughs) tons, yeah. Coldplay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> on that note, um, Paul McDonald, thank you so much for being yeah, my first guest on Originate Innovate Don't Deviate. I enjoyed it. I, Thanks. I can't believe that we've done almost two hours. It feels like ten minutes to slip by. Um, fascinating stuff. Good luck with everything, uh, and for the new artists, we will be looking at Lily Moore, and and I I know that there is more no pun intended uh, yeah. to come through. Thank All you. Right. Thanks, Millen. Originate Innovate
0: Don't Deviate with Tony Moore.